The Way Out Podcast, episode 276. Hey, what's your name? Jacqueline Brown. Mmm. Nice. What, uh... <laughs> it's good to have you on the show, Jacqueline. <laughs> what... And, and I'm really looking forward to this, by the way. But what event or catalyst got you to begin helping others and working at your own personal development? My brother passed away of a heroin overdose on November 16th, 2018. Mm, I'm sorry. Thank you. Yeah. How long have you been on this journey? Uh, since day. that day. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That <laughs> moment when I found out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that, I mean, did that like make you look at like your, how you were coping or like, and it just make you feel f-ed up or something? Is that like how it ended up getting, pushing you to like st- realize that you need to like work on yourself? Cause yeah, it was one of those things where, and I always kind of describe it like this, that when my brother died that day, like that version of me also died that day. Like everything that I thought of in the world completely changed that day and so once you kind of like lose that piece of yourself then it's just like I don't know who the fuck I am anymore you know and he was such a big role in my life I have two siblings he was the young his name is Mark and I have my younger sister Allison so I'm the oldest of three and um like to lose I mean I've known him since obviously he was born he was my first best friend so to not have that piece of your life anymore it was a just a total mind i can't imagine yeah i just can't um how how do you serve the recovery community i am the volunteer coordinator for shot in the dark which is a local syringe service program here in phoenix arizona Um, Additionally, I am a part of the Recovery Advocacy Project, so I'm on the Arizona Recovery Advocacy Project team, but then I also serve as a field organizer, uh, which pretty much means I help other, there are three other states, um, Missouri, Florida, and Illinois, and I help them facilitate meetings, get ideas for, you know, advocacy things to do. and then I'm also, I, I originally started as like a Shatterproof ambassador and Shatterproof's like a national nonprofit that focuses on reducing the stigma surrounding addiction. Wow. Okay. So, you know, just a bunch of random stuff. Yeah, no big place. deal. No big deal. No big deal. Don't worry about it. I'm also the president. I'm the president. No. Um, I'm the president and CEO of my podcast, Dark and Enlightened. <laughs> that oh, too. snap. Dude. Uh, yeah. CEO, yeah, you CEO. cannot forget to include that. Yeah, my bad. Here you had a really awesome guest last time. Yeah. Oh my god, he was <laughs> so cool. This dude. I, I think you might know him. I'm not sure. No big deal. <laughs> it's me, you guys. <laughs> oh my god, cats out of the bag. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, and then, what does recovery mean to you? I think recovery is any positive change. I just keep it as simple as that. Because I don't think that I am the one who decides what your recovery is. I think every person makes that definition themselves. So, I mean, I know that's a big harm reduction thing is like meeting people where they're at. That's pretty much my philosophy on things. Truly, that's it's a common thread in any recovery pathway 
that I've ever heard of mm-hmm. is, you know, to meet people where they're at. Yep. You know, we don't shoot our wounded. Mm-hmm. The only mm-hmm. requirement for membership is the desire. Mm-hmm. So you could be drunk and come into mm-hmm. the meeting. You could be high and come into the meeting. People will just ask you to keep your mouth shut and your ears open. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're yep. under the influence, like, because people have a tendency, once they feel comfortable, they start hearing some stuff that resonates with them that gives them permission to share, but they're drunk or they're high. So they just start ranting and they get on a soapbox and shit. Right. So, no, no, no. Just shut the fuck up and listen. <laughs> you know, and come back here when you're sober next time. Come back. Yeah. Come back, mm-hmm. bro. You know? Yeah. Um, but that's that's everywhere and anywhere you go in the in the recovery sphere is mm-hmm. that mentality. It's uh and it should be. And I'm not yeah. saying everybody lives that way or follows yeah. that principle because mm-hmm. they don't. And yeah. you know, that's unfortunate. Yeah, I, I don't feel ostracized when they come into a meeting because they f***ed up and relapsed and were gone for a couple of weeks. Exactly. And I I honestly didn't <laughs> even know the term harm reduction till maybe, I don't know, a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. But when my brother was still alive, like there would be times where, you know, he would stop using heroin, but he'd still drink or smoke cannabis. And I considered him in recovery. So, I mean, not you know, 2015, 2016, I had no f-ing clue that's quote harm reduction. Right. But, you know, to some people they're like, oh, so he's still not sober. And I'm like, mm, to me he is, you know, like he's not using the drug that made this chaotic, you know, environment in his life. So mm. whatever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And I can relate to your brother on that mm-hmm. from my personal experience. Welcome Way Out faithful and first-timers to this week's installment of the Way Out podcast. We appreciate your ears. Our mission is simple, to bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction. The Way Out podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out podcast partners with All Recovery Rings and AllRecoveryRings.com, where you'll find stunning recovery rings made from your very own recovery coin. That's AllRecoveryRings.com. The Way Out podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Listen up, everyone. Certified and professional recovery coaching 
is now available by going to wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. We want to help you and those you know who want help in building a strong, rewarding, and enduring recovery. Let our recovery experience and training enhance and strengthen your recovery by visiting wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. Finally, a word of caution. This podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and in this edition of The Way Out, our intrepid recovery co-host Jason has an outstanding interview with recovery advocate and ally Jacqueline Brown, who is also a survivor of a loss of a family member due to addiction. Jacqueline is also the creator and host of the Dark and Enlightened podcast, a podcast in which Jason was a recent guest, so be sure to check that episode out post-haste. Jacqueline shares about her life and the loss of her brother Mark to an overdose in 2018, an experience that made her aware that she needed to dig deep and work on herself. Her journey of self-discovery both enlightened and inspired her to learn as much as she could about the disease of addiction. Today, Jacqueline is a harm reduction expert, Narcan trainer and volunteer, and all-around recovery advocate extraordinaire. Jacqueline's story is just beginning as she quit her job in corporate America in search of a true vocation in the recovery sphere. And Jason's interview with this recovery powerhouse starts right now. So listen up. Hey, everybody out there in Well Podcast Land. This is your trusty co-host, Jason. I got with me a new friend, Jacqueline Brown. What's up, Jacqueline? Hi there. How are you? Oh, you put your radio voice on for that. I know. Wasn't that fucking cool? That was a real professional. Yeah. Super excited. <laughs> you, like, you sounded like a sex therapist. You're like, Hi there. Hi there. We just going? played Huey Lewis in the news. Now we're gonna see. <laughs> why is I don't know why the fuck that was the first group that popped in my head. All the groups, you know, hey. Huey Lewis in the news. Why not? It's setting the mood now. Yeah. <laughs> well, so if you guys can't tell, Jacqueline is a goofy goofball and i like it <laughs> and i'm no different so we're gonna have fun and uh no i i met jacqueline at mobilize recovery and yep. that was you know something that was life-changing and and had uh pointed me in the direction of some new new things that i'm pointing towards you know that i'm going to start working on um to serve the community and for my own you know continued education and uh, personal development but it was it was an awesome thing and you guys are going to probably get sick of hearing me talk about it over the next year <laughs> and then next year i'm going to go again and then you'll hear it more and more no it, like 2022 guess what it's happened? awesome it's awesome <laughs> it maybe is. i'll in, inspire some of you guys to check it out uh but anyway we yeah we went and had tacos yep. one night and we got to hang out and fellowship a little bit and yeah. it, yeah, you're just a down to earth lady who's on fire to help people out, and I love it. And Thank I you. I got to be on your show recently. Yes. That's yes. out, dark and enlightened. Uh, yes, man, that was an awesome experience. We went a little deeper than I think, and and 
and talked about some aspects of my journey that I hadn't talked about before, I think in a public. Oh, really? Setting. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, like you said, you like having deep conversations. So you, you asked kind of, I think, I think there's so much to be said for like, if you, <clears throat> if you prepare a set of questions for an interview mm-hmm. and that's like a scripted interview, mm-hmm. um, even if something, you know, a stroke of inspiration hits you, then what do you do? You know, you got to stick to the script. Yeah. Right. Fuck that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? In the be- in the beginning, when I first started doing my podcast, I remember I was very much like, okay, well, let's circle back to the, this other question. But there was one interview I had, one of the first ones where I think I got to like two or three of the, you know, 15 questions, but then the conversation just kept rolling. And I was like, fuck it. I'll make questions ahead of time. But as kind of like a guide or like to trigger, you know, in case I haven't talked about this because I'm curious about it. Right. But if the conversation just flows like for our interview, I think I don't even think we went through half the questions just because, you know, the conversation was going. So fuck it. I'm not going to be like, anyway, pause. Number six. <laughs> we have to talk about this. Right. I mean, you you get a rough idea, right? Of like the things that somebody has going on and you want to make sure you give those some time. But right. really, where's the conversation going to lead? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. my hope, my hope is always that like maybe our conversation could become something that's productive mm-hmm. for and it could be for me or it could mm-hmm. be for you. Right. Right. But maybe we're going to peel back a layer of this onion together is my hope, you know, mm-hmm. and and unearth something that, you know, wasn't even. We couldn't have planned for it because, you know, it wasn't something that was even on the table until yeah. we talked about this thing, you know, mm-hmm. and it's it's cool when you can walk away from a recording and feel like that was like a, actually like a really like healthy, productive conversation. Yeah. Like, I feel like I helped, you know, that person or I feel right. like that really helped me, you know, yeah. like, and but I mean, I admittedly, I always feel like it helps me. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know what I mean? It's just, yeah. yeah. So I just don't want to ever have any regrets. I just want to like do talk about everything that we can possibly think of to talk about. Yeah. And then we're going to be good. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, wow. It's cool. You're here. Welcome. I'm here. Hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, we usually start from. You know, the the childhood thing, the family of origin, just want to know a little bit about like, you know, what life was like growing up for you and and, you know, just stuff like that, like little Jacqueline, little Jacqueline, little Jacqueline. So um, little Jacqueline was born in Santa Monica, California, and I am the oldest of three. My middle uh, middle my my brother Mark is the second and Allison is the third uh growing up my parents uh when I was nine they decided that they wanted to move my dad's originally from Brooklyn and we were living in LA and he wanted the opposite of both of those so we moved to Sierra Vista Arizona which I know you've probably heard of um yep exactly no. so <laughs> Exactly. So it's a town of like fucking at the time, I think it was like 30,000 people. So definitely the opposite of the two. Um, Dad worked for Social Security. So 
um, there was an office that he transferred to that was like in another town that's even fucking smaller, uh, like 45 minutes away. So we moved to this town and it was definitely a culture shock. I went to, I guess I didn't realize maybe I'm a weirdo because I went to a Montessori school. Have you ever heard of Montessori schools? No. So in California, I, and I think they're actually, maybe they're multi-state. I know there's some in Arizona, but a Montessori school, when I went to school, it was, what do you guys want to learn today? Like there were no textbooks. There wasn't any sort of like set curriculum. And mind you, I went to like till fourth grade. So it'd be like, do you guys want to learn about how waves are made in the ocean? We're like, yeah. And like one time I was like, hey, could I write a holiday play uh, for Christmas and make a script and we can all do this? And everyone's like, yeah, like it was very free flowing. Hmm. So then when I came to Arizona and went to public school, because again, Montessori is like private bougie school. When I went to public school, they're like, oh, here are your textbooks. I'm like, what are these? Like, I had no, I was like a fucking alien, you know? And everyone's like, you know, we're going to talk about science. We're going to talk about this. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? Like, why aren't we getting to pick what we learn? And I remember (laughs) one thing that stands out to me, which um, again, like in mobilized recovery, like the big thing was like, you know, think back to a time when you were younger, where there was like a moment that defined you and, you know, kind of changed the way you thought about things. And back in fourth grade, there were these, um, Mm. what the fuck are those called? Um, You know, in high school, like best dressed and what the hyperbole, not hyperboles. I don't know what yeah, the fuck like they're most called. likely to succeed. Exactly. All the that. Class they, clown. They, yeah, exactly. So they did that in fourth grade and I'm thinking like, oh, I want to get best dressed. I want to get class clown. And I got most responsible, which is like the <laughs> fucking last thing you want to get as like a fucking nine year old. Like who the wow. fuck wants most responsible? And so like I came home and uh, they're <laughs> like, what award did you win? I was like, most responsible. And they're like, well, that's good. Like you are responsible. You're you're the oldest. I was like, Ugh. like, so from there, that kind of <laughs> set the tone for my fucking life. You know, like <laughs> most responsible, yeah. always prepared. Um, you know, my brother and I, and also me and my sister, we all had a very close relationship growing up. Um, although like my sister was, an annoying person as a child. Um, and she would just, you know, whatever, she's the baby sister. So she was spoiled and all that. So sometimes it'd be me and my brother against her, um, and, and all that, but it was, we never had that like brother sister relationship where we were fighting or anything like that. We really like loved hanging out with each other. And, um, you know, my mom is Filipino. My dad is Irish. So I grew up in a household where, uh, I was Catholic. Um, you know, we went to church every Sunday. Um, you know, it's just like nothing crazy. There wasn't anything like, and again, it's one of those things where it's like, I feel like we were all raised the same way. Um, went to, you know, got a job at 16, like did all this responsible shit. I paid for my own pager, you know, woo, watch out. Well, I mean, um, you were the most responsible. I know. And I actually have that fucking, I went home <laughs> and it it's in a frame and I brought it from my parents' house. I'm like, I need to put this up on my wall just to like reaffirm that I'm the most responsible. Oh, um, <laughs> but, but it's such a fucking stupid. I'm like, God damn it. You were nine. I know I'm nine. Who the fuck wants that? Like Nobody says wants the response or the- <laughs> like the elementary school yep. logo. And and it was one of those things, too, where like in fifth grade, like, you know how everyone has dare. And 
Yeah. Uh, I won the award for like the best dare essay, which I guess is mm. kind of ironic to think back on. <laughs> and uh, I won some citizenship. So I was always just kind of like, I can't be a bad kid because like I'm under a microscope with my parents, like the oldest, they have a microscope under you. And then for Mark and Allison, it was like, do whatever the fuck you want. And I'm like, this is some fucking bullshit. So I went to um, community college. Um, after that, I transferred to the University of Arizona and I was there till after I graduated. But um, at that point, my brother actually moved in with me to Tucson or in Tucson because he went to school at U of A as well. So I was already out of school, but I was still living in Tucson working. And then he moved in with me. And um, it was like, being kids again, like hanging out all the time, but we were fucking adults and we could do whatever we want. And I'm like, oh, do you want to have pizza rolls for dinner? Like, yeah, this is fucking awesome. Or like, let's order 20 chicken nuggets whenever we want. Because when we were kids, it was like, we can get McDonald's every other Friday. Like on payday, McDonald's was like the shit. Like, oh, we get McDonald's today. We were not that family that went out to eat. We didn't fucking... We didn't do any of that shit. Like, you know, fucking families go to Chili's and Applebee's and all that shit all the time. We never fucking did that. Always had to eat at home unless it was some special occasion. And then it was like, we're going to go to the Red Lobster. We're like, fuck yeah, Red Lobster. You know, get all excited about that. But <laughs> so like our treat is McDonald's. Like, and to this day, I have no fucking shame admitting I McDonald's is like comfort food for me. Like if I have a bad day, eat McDonald's. Have a shitty day, eat McDonald's. McDonald's is just like all right, evens me out. Right. Um, but, you know, when I moved in with my brother, it was it was weird to not weird to live with him again, but it was just like nothing had ever changed, even though I had been out of the house for however many years. Um, and then what ended up happening is I got a phone call and this was like back when restricted was like still a real thing you know like it would show up on your caller id as restricted i was like mm, i don't know who the fuck this is i'm not answering it and then they left a voicemail and it was this woman who said hi um i just witnessed an accident that your brother was in he gave me your number please call me back and i was like what the fuck so i call her and she says, I just witnessed an accident. There was a man who was driving drunk and he ran into the Albertsons, like the actual grocery store. Then he backed up and we were trying. There was like a group of people who were trying to be like, hey, like fucking stop, you know, stop driving. He drove through the parking lot and my brother was on the main road coming back from Wendy's, like back to our house and T-boned my brother. My brother was ejected from the vehicle. And this dude tried to get out and run. And these people tackled this guy and took him down to make sure he didn't leave the scene. Mm. And, um, wow. you know, she was like, he's being taken to, you know, this hospital. He was alert. He was awake. Just giving you a heads up. And that was like the first time in our lives that anything like. Mm, I fucking lie. I'm sorry. I lie. Um, before, <laughs> before that, my dad, um, there, when I was a freshman in high school, this is all over the place, whatever. Um, when I was a no, freshman in high school, uh, <laughs> no, it's fine. Just keep the timelines right. When I was a freshman in high school, um, 
my dad woke up one morning and he was his skin tone. He was like completely green. And what ended up happening, he went to the hospital and found out that he had pancreatic cancer and his bile was going back into the system because like his pancreas wasn't working right. Holy shit. So what ends up happening is my dad is a very bougie person when it comes to like medical care. He's like, because he has government insurance. So he has like the best fucking health insurance you can have. And he's like, I'm going to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. So him and my mom uh, were in Minnesota literally, I think, for two to three months. So me as a freshman, I'm at home taking care of my brother and sister. Mm. And as a freshman, I think I'm 13 or 14. And uh, my grandma lived with us or still lives with us as well. Um, But she doesn't speak English very well. She's Filipino. So, I mean, there's my most responsible coming in. I'm fucking running this household. Um, And that was back in the day of like writing checks. So like my mom would call me and be like, okay, I need you to write a check for this. Do you see this bill? You know, can you do that? Because again, she's not in the fucking state. Um, So my dad comes back and I remember he had lost like a hundred pounds and he was so fucking frail. And I had no idea how dangerous or bad pancreatic cancer was like zero fucking clue. So when he came home, it was just kind of like, okay, well, you know, dad just needs to recover. And after that first year, um, he said, you know, most people actually don't survive in their first year. Only 5% do. He's like, so it looks like I made it. And then he just laughed really loud. And I was like, why the fuck didn't you tell us this? You know what I mean? So I was just like, okay, let's just brush past that. But I think that's that generation. You know what I mean? Like they don't want to let on how bad something is until yeah. like it's passed. And then they're like, oh, I should have <laughs> died, but I didn't. So we're good. <laughs> um, but my dad has had like. You're like, yay. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, I don't know if this is going to come back. Like, I don't right. understand. Uh, but he's had prostate cancer, bladder cancer, uh, fucking kidney cancer so skin cancer he's had every type of cancer so cancer has always been like hanging out in my life so when people are like it it's it's again you're forced to get into that responsible role where it's like okay well let me help my mom and let me explain this to my brother and my sister or whatever it may be so um well and so but i think too you know it sounds like it would be like the type of thing where it just kind of like normalizes uh for you being in a crisis situation like yes probably you know moving forward from here and i'm sure you've already experienced this in your life like you find yourself in a crisis situation you could probably kind of be like the voice of reason or almost a guide through it like a calm exactly in the storm because you're this is your normal like you've been used to this yeah and Actually, that's one thing I've never really thought about that it goes back that far because, again, you know, I was what 14, 13 year olds writing checks for their parents and then making sure their brothers and Mm. sisters picked up from school. Like, and I'm not the one who's, I would walk to the school and walk them back because, again, you know, also back in the day, my dad told us, oh, we're all going to get kidnapped. You know, like, I don't want you to get kidnapped. (laughs) So, you know, clearly me walking with them will prevent the kidnapping. Are you fucking kidding me? Do you see who I am? Like, I'm not going to stop anyone. Well, no, actually, I might. But uh, <laughs> it was 
it was um, something where, yeah, no one was going through what I was going through. No one had their dad who had pancreatic cancer. Um, you know, a little bit later on, my mom gets breast cancer. I mean, there, there's just all sorts of like health shit that's always going on. And I didn't realize like how not normal that is um, for people because I don't think a lot of people go through or see their parents go through shit like that until much later on in life. Right. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, I, I'm probably out of cortisol because I'm always in fucking fight mode. You know what I mean? Like I don't, I don't know flight mode cause I've never been allowed to flight. So right. yeah, it is, uh, I've never really pondered that it goes back that far, but yeah, I'm always the type of person people were will freak out about something. Back. We're already yeah. back there. Exactly. We got oh. an onion peel. It's gonna be a fucking awesome blossom by the end. Yeah. Oh exactly. <laughs> those are good. They are fucking good, dude. They're excessive. Like it's yeah. too much. I'm always like, like, I don't even I'm full. I don't even want the other food, but exactly. Really but then good. I'm like, well, I fucking ordered the fucking Aussie, whatever the fuck it, you know what I mean? But <laughs> yeah, those are fucking delightful. And that campfire sauce is very good too. Anyway, I digress. Squirrels and, <laughs> squirrels and rabbit trails. This is what I'm saying. We don't do timelines here. We'll yeah. be talking about some seriously like traumatic <laughs> shit one second. Exactly. Awesome blossoms the next. It By the way, matter. do you like onion rings? <laughs> exactly. Yes. Out of fucking nowhere. <laughs> like, what's your favorite kind of batter? <laughs> exactly. You know what? It's a beer batter. That's funny you mentioned that because we were having this. Co- I was having this conversation the other day with my husband because what a burger. Do you guys have what a burger in Minnesota? I don't think you do. No. They have onion rings, which I did not know until last week. And they have that perfect beer batter, you know, like the smooth, not the crummy batter, yes. the smooth batter. That's the fucking batter. Mm-hmm. And they were delightful. And I got the onion rings in addition to my French fries because I'm a fucking adult. I can dig at both. So oh, snap. it was amazing. Um, I would highly recommend. Perks of growing up. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> my money, I get what I want. Exactly. <laughs> if, if I want my arteries to clog, I'll do it. I don't fucking care. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, you, you know, and you. I wanted to touch on this too, because actually, you know how whenever you share your story, mm-hmm. um, you always, always, always without fail, you will walk away from that. At some point, you're going to be like, oh, shit, I should have mentioned this, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Or I should have mentioned that. Yeah. Well, I think after our interview on on your show, Dark and Enlightened, I would realized that I never brought this up. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I could totally be wrong. It wouldn't mm-hmm. be the first time and it won't be the last if I was wrong. But I think I forgot to mention this. Um, when I was eight, my mom and she had like her alcoholism had ramped up. And and then I was taking care of my brother when he was really, really young mm-hmm. and like a baby. And then basically from the time I was eight, when that started till I was 13, it wasn't like 24 seven around the clock, always me taking care of them. But I mean, my sister was born two years after, you know, and so like now I'm 10 and I got another newborn and my brother's two now, but I, from time I was eight to 13, I pretty much, you know, took care of my brother and sister a lot. Yeah. Cooked, cleaned, 
Damn, all man. that stuff, you know, I didn't mm-hmm. write checks for, her, but <laughs> you know, so you win. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There but was no, a, po- I, when yeah. you were talking about that, I was like, man, you know, cause that was a big thing for me. And I think a big uh, contributor to like, when I first started running away from home, using a lot of alcohol or drugs um, and just the defiant nature because I was resentful because I felt like I got robbed out of my childhood, you know, when all the other kids in the neighborhood, my age are like innocent and shit. I'm like, I've seen the porns in my mom's third dresser drawer hiding under Mm -hmm. her clothes from front to end, like a hundred times. And, uh, you know, just things that a a kid that young shouldn't, you know, I I'm used to like that stress of having a baby that won't stop crying and you yeah. want to shake the baby, you want to squeeze the baby. I mean, when you're a kid, you don't know how to handle that kind of fucking pressure or, right. uh, you know, it's just overstimulating and overwhelming for a kid to have to like deal with a crying baby. Absolutely. So it was just like when you were talking about how you, you know, you had to like, kind of like take, you were the woman of the house, you know? Like, yeah. And even, I can relate to that. Yeah. And even when, when my dad, even before he was sick, you know, both my parents work full time. And if they had doctor's appointments, you know, this is fucking, you know, the nineties, it wasn't like, okay, I'm going to leave work for a few hours and I'll be right back. It's like, no, you have to stay at work. So me, my grandma, the only reason my grandma will come was she, she was just street cred to look like there's an adult with us who, you know, (laughs) is going to handle shit in reality. Like me and my grandma have a specific broken English that we speak to each other, but I was always the person who was talking. So I'm fucking nine or 10 where me, my grandma, my brother, my sister, we're all walking to a fucking doctor's because, you know, kids have to go to the fucking doctor every goddamn day. So we would walk, you know, the couple blocks to the doctor's office and I would go up and I'd say, hi, I'm here with my brother, Mark and my sister, Allison. We have an appointment at 3 p.m. And they'd be like, you're fucking 10 probably. And I was like, I also have a check here. What's the copay? So like I knew what to ask because my mom and my daughters, you know, were like, they're going to ask you this. It should be this amount of money. If it's not, tell them to call me. And I'm like, okay, great. So we'd go to these, I'd go to these doctor's appointments with them and be like, yeah, Mark's coughing or Allison's doing whatever the fuck she's doing. And I would report back and I'd go, well, they here's a prescription for this. They said to do this. So I was always like the in between third parent slash whatever the fuck I am, liaison, like diplomat. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck I was. But I was always this person who, you know, I they saw me as a sibling, but they also saw me as like, this is the person I go to Um, whenever fucking anthrax happened. I don't know. My sister was like eight or nine. I remember I would be talking on my really cool cordless phone in my room with all my Jonathan Taylor Thomas posters on the wall. (laughs) And then my door would be shut. And then all of a sudden I'd hear a pounding and then there'd be a note that would slip under the door. And it would be my sister and she'd be like, do I have anthrax? Please circle yes or no. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? And I would lose my mind. I'd be like, <laughs> you cannot, you cannot. I would open the door and I'd go, Allison, you do not have fucking anthrax. <laughs> and she would like run off because she's a child. 
yeah. then I remember um, then it, this was like a, a month of letters under the door in the middle of my social time. So then there'd be another letter. I think there was baby powder on the table, but I'm not sure. Could that have been anthrax too? Please circle yes or no. I'm like, oh, for fuck's sake. Like, talk to mom and dad. Not, like, don't Please ask me if you have an anthrax. Yes no. I, exactly. Like, it was a fucking go to prom with me sort of deal. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it was always them coming to me. If, like, my brother, you know, um, was going to put something together, it would be like, oh, Jack, can you help, you know, your brother put together this toy? Or, you know, we'd put together Millennium Falcons and all sorts of shit. So, um, you know, I was always that most responsible person. You know, I always was there to kind of be the calming force. So any crisis that happens now, I'm probably the most chill person in the room. I'm like, guys, calm the fuck down. I'm always that person. I'm never right. losing my shit. It's funny um, because the way it's other people's crisis, at least mm-hmm. this is my history. Like, I think like the opposite effect happened to me moving forward in my life. You know, once my mom got on the wagon and started like being a mom and stuff again mm-hmm. i lashed out in rebellion i ran away mm. i i put my running shoes on at that point um but you you know as you had mentioned before you just never had flight in you because you never had the choice like I seized the day when it came to my chance to flight instead of yeah. fight anymore. And, and as a result, you know, that, you know, that was a journey of many years of hiding from, uh, on and just having unprocessed emotions and trauma, but man, so you're, you're like the most responsible kid ever in the history of the human race at this point. <laughs> um but i will say though that does change when i move to tucson for college because i didn't drink in high school i was too afraid to fucking drink in high school i remember going asking to go to a dance asking to go to anything was like the fucking you know first degree like where who's gonna pick you up where are you gonna go what time are you gonna be there what time are you gonna be back and my dad's very overprotective like overprotective in the sense that I didn't realize like the game of trouble, you know, how trouble has the little pegs that you move around. Mm. I thought the game of trouble was just popping the dice in the middle and guessing what number was going to show up because my dad took away all the pegs and threw them away because he thought I was going to choke on them. So I had no fucking clue that trouble is actually a real game where you move shit around. I thought it was just like, guess the number that the dice is going to be. Uh, he, I remember he got my sister an easy bake oven, but cut the cord because he thought we would get electrocuted. So I'm like, what are we supposed to do with this? We can't bake anything. So we would like pretend to bake cakes that weren't fucking real. So like you I have an easy bake oven. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like, hello, you got what you wanted. I just yeah. cut the cord. Um, <laughs> so I, it, it was something where, That's funny. Uh, you know, it was he was very overprotective. So it's like, if I said, I'm going to come home from a dance at midnight, it's 1202. Best believe he is standing in the doorway in his fucking robe as my friend drops me off. And I'm so fucking embarrassed. I'm like, Oh my God. So I was always like under a fucking microscope. Like I never wanted to upset my parents. Um, uh, I don't know how much you know about an Asian household, but it's like, if you got a B, why didn't you get an A? And if you got an A, why didn't you get an A plus like academics, like, all that shit's very big um, in any fucking Asian ha- household, I would assume. But 
So Mm. everything was like, get good grades, go to college, be a doctor. That was always what it is. Get, you know, all that bullshit. And I remember when I was about to graduate up until that point, I thought, okay, I'm going to be a doctor. But then I was like, I want to fucking be a doctor. Like, that's what my dad wants me to do. Mm. And I told him, I don't want to be a doctor anymore. And he's like, what are you talking about? You've been talking about this since you were five. And mind you, what the fuck do I know at five? And so he did not talk to me literally for probably three days because I no longer wanted to be a doctor. But then when he came back, because I said, I want to go to business school, I think I'd be good in business school. My dad's the type of person where he will do research. So he went to the fucking library, you know, back in the day. And he went on like Microfitch or whatever the fuck he did. And he printed out all these articles about business school. And he's like, okay, so I looked up business school and it looks like, you know, you can be pretty good in business school and you'll be, his whole thing was financial security. Like that's his whole big thing. And I think that's that generation is he didn't want me to ever suffer financially. So it's like, oh, if you become a doctor, you never have to fucking worry about it. So then to flip it and be like, oh, I want to do business. Then he's like, okay, well, I looked up and it looks like business people can make money too. So like I'll approve. (laughs) I'm like, all right, whatever. Thanks, dad. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So again, I was always the person, you know, fucking honor roll, all that bullshit. And then when I moved to Tucson for college, um, I went to community college for the first two years because it's fucking cheaper. And when I went to uh, Tucson, moved away from home, and I turned 21, like then I was like, well, I can drink. No one's going to tell me fucking anything. And, you know, my drinking started with like fucking smearing off ice or triple blood, you know, everything with it's like heartburn and blood and everything was like sweet and all that shit. And even then, like, you know, I, I think everyone would call it like normal college drinking where you know, you drink a shit ton and you barf and blah, 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 and repeat. And that's college. But there was a point where even after college, and again, I had this like almost like delayed rebellion where it was like, I can do what I want. I can go out when I want. I can do anything. So I would always be the person, Hey, do you guys want to go out tonight? Does anyone want to hang out? Do you want to go to a club? Do you want to do this? Blah, 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 blah. And I lived by myself. And I think a big piece of that was I was so used to being around my brother, my sister, my family, always having people around. Mm -hmm. And then when you move and you live by yourself, like it was really shitty. Like I never wanted to be at home. I always wanted to be around people and not necessarily because like people fed me and like, you know, I needed to have social interaction, but I just, I didn't like being alone. You know, I'd never been alone really in my life. Um, So I remember there were times when we'd go out and fucking drink, but then it like the drinking wasn't always fun drinking. It was like I would wake up, I'd be fucking blacked out from the night before and be in a panic. Like what happened last night? How did I get home? Like all these fucking blanks. Um, And it would get to a point, too, where I started I would go out and hang out with people, but then I would just be fucking over and I didn't want to be around anyone anymore. So. There was no Uber back then. A cab was fucking pricey. I was making no fucking money at my job out of college. And I would drive fucking drunk home all the time. And I remember there were numerous times where I fell asleep at stoplights. There were numerous times where 
I would just be drifting in and out. And I just thought I'm really fucking lucky. I'm fucking lucky. Like I made it home. Blow. I didn't realize like this is not normal behavior. A lot of people are probably not going and driving drunk home, you know, two, three nights a week. And a lot of people actually don't know this aspect of me because, you know, I'm responsible. <laughs> I'm the most responsible, obviously. Right. So I shouldn't be drunk driving home. But I can't tell you how many times I fell asleep at a stoplight or how many times I woke up and had no fucking recollection of the night before. Um, and I think it was just one of those things where it's for me to loosen up and not be so responsible. I needed to have alcohol. Yeah. And it was, it was hard for me to be like, cause it like flew in the face. It laughed in the face of everything you've been taught and everything, mm -hmm. how you live your life. Right. Exactly. And then, and then now that you finally aren't under a microscope, you're like, you kind of, probably needed to sow your wild oats a little bit you know yep. what I mean? mm -hmm. and that yeah. and that's totally what it was it was you know i'm gonna go fucking drink i'm gonna go have fun i was going out you know thursday friday saturday every week i don't even fucking know how i managed to pay my bills and work a job and you know i would show up to work hungover and i'm just thinking oh it's just because i'm in my 20s but in reality it was like i have been most responsible for all this time in my life and it was totally that like I can do whatever the fuck I want. I can be at a, out as late as I want. I don't have to worry about anything. Right. Um, and then I was dating a person who shall remain nameless because he's a douchebag. And he, <laughs> he, um, you're not going to get up, recognition here. <laughs> if you're listening, <laughs> fuck it. Anyway, no, I'm not going to say his name. Fuck him. So, <laughs> if, um, so we were dating for a while and every time I dated a person, I, that was like my first real like taste of like codependence. Every time I dated a person, I would morph myself to what they liked. I would, you know, compromise what I like doing for them. Um, I wanted to make sure they, they would fuck up, but yet somehow it was my fault. And I would understand, oh yeah, no, you're right. I shouldn't have asked you about that. Like I got into a really fucking shitty space where everyone that i was dating was very um i'm not going to say they were all narcissists but they were all they definitely took advantage of the fact that i was a very empathetic and responsible and caring person right so there would be times that you know this last person the ex that i'm talking about he would i remember this one time we went this sounds so lame we went to go see sex in the city the movie and I was running to the movie theater and I went to jump and hit a sign because I fucking drank too much and I rolled my ankle. And by the end of the movie, my ankle was so swollen. It's like my right ankle, my driving ankle. And so I told him he had not drank at all that night. And I was like, dude, could you please drive? Like, I can barely walk on my ankle. And he's like, I don't really want to drive, though, because it's your car and I'm just not comfortable, like with the way your seats are. And I was like. I literally cannot fucking like I can't I can barely walk dude like can you fucking drive and he's like I mean just don't go fat like he did not drive home I ended up driving home this guy was a fucking douchebag he treated me like fucking shit but I put up with it I, I don't know why I don't know because my dad's fucking awesome I don't have that daddy issue situation so right. I I don't know what it was but I think it's just one of those things where you I don't know. I don't know what it, why that is actually. So 
seeking validation probably you know like you want you want to be accepted and loved and liked right like so mm-hmm. so you're gonna people please and bend yeah bend over fucking backwards to try yep. to not create waves you know? absolutely but all that does right is like it festers it mm-hmm. festers in you right yep you're you're unintentionally and probably subconsciously keeping score of all these times that you felt some type of way, but never acted on it. In fact, you did the opposite of what you want to do, what your heart told you to do, because you're like, man, you don't know that's going to cause something, you know? Right. I mean, and, I, um, I used and, to be people pleaser and I fucking hated it, dude. It made me. Upset. Yeah. And, and then I went it, the other opposite end and I turned into an asshole for a long time. <laughs> I was super huge, like prick about shit. Uh huh. I didn't like that either, you know. So now you're middle of the road. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, I was definitely a people pleaser for sure. I hated the idea of anyone potentially being mad at me. I hated the idea of potentially someone not liking me. I hated all that shit, and um, I ended up breaking up. No, he broke up with me. Because he's just like, I don't think I'll love you. And I was like, fuck off. And I was so, but I was so fucking sad about it because I was like, you know, I would go to work, I come home, cry, go to work, come home, cry like a fucking loser. And I remember one night my friends were like, hey, let's go out. I'm like, okay, let's go out. We go to this fucking bar and we're hanging out, having a good time. And across the bar, I see my ex. It had been like six weeks since I've seen him. And he's with another girl. And I'm like, this is some fucking bullshit. And my friend, who's a dude, he's like, do you want me to go check to see if it's really him? I was like, oh, it's fucking him. He's like, well, let me go see. So he goes and talks to him, tries to figure out who the girl is. And he's like, oh, that's his girlfriend. I was like, we're fucking leaving. Like, I'm done. You know, I had just done like a fucking Jaeger bomb, you know, 30 minutes earlier. I'm like, let's fucking go. We go. We leave. Woo. Fucking police. I get pulled over. I get a DUI. And I remember because it was a winter and so it was fucking freezing out. I think it was like 30 or, you know, whatever degrees out in my fucking, I took my heels off and I'm doing like the whole field sobriety test. And I remember thinking, just stay fucking calm. Like if you start crying, you start freaking out. This all goes on a police report. So even still, I'm like being responsible in my head. I'm like, just chill, comply whatever the fuck you need to do. Right. But I'm also having an internal meltdown because I'm like, I'm going to get fucking arrested. And I had never done anything wrong, like on this level in my fucking life. And actually probably most people don't, if anyone listens to this, most people probably do not know that I've been arrested. So, uh, I, the dude's like, okay, well, I'm going to arrest you. But he didn't take me like to the police station he um breathalyzed my friend confirmed she was good to drive and i was able to take she drove my car home and i remember just being up all night like how am i going to tell my parents and i called my mom the next morning and i said i don't want you to get mad at me right now but just so you know i got arrested last night for a dui I need you to wait one hour to say anything to dad because I just need to like decompress. I'm okay. I'm at home, but I got arrested and I don't know what's going to happen. And she's like, okay. And I'm like, I'm going to go by exactly one fucking hour later, like to the minute 
Wow. My dad calls and he's like, we're going to go up to Tucson to see you. And I was like, okay. And he's like, see you in an hour. And I was like, and so I'm like freaking the fuck out. Uh. And I'm losing my mind. I'm thinking they're going to fucking ream me, you know? Right. I open the door. My dad has a stack of papers and he's like, we're going to fight this Jack. I have all these lawyers we can get in contact with. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? And I'm expecting him to like lose his mind because hello, I just got a fucking DUI. And my mom's like, are you okay? Are you hungry? And I'm like, what the fuck's going on right now? And, and I had like all these fucking, you know, I had people hang out and party at my house. So I had like all these empty Miller light boxes that were in my laundry room. And they're like, I see why you got the DUI. My dad started laughing. I was like, what the fuck is like? It was so weird because up until that point, it was this relationship with my parents was like, don't upset them. They're your parents. And now they were just like, we're going to fucking help you. And I mean, it was wild because I had told my dad, you know, I was working for fucking enterprise at the time, you know, where you can be your own manager or whatever the fuck it was. And I hated that job. That job is soul sucking and awful. And (laughs) I told him, you know, I told them all the time, I fucking hate this job. I hate this job. I hate this job. And he's like, and I said, well, now that I have a DUI, I definitely can't probably work at this job. And he's like, well, then maybe it happened for a reason. Maybe this happened so you can quit your job and feel okay about it and we'll take care of your bills. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? And I felt like I was in a fucking twilight zone because <laughs> anybody else of my friends who got a DUI, that was not the response they got from their fucking parents. So right. um, that was probably the first moment, though, that I really realized, like, this is like unconditional love. Like, this is what it looks like. Because even when you fuck up, Because the first person I called after my DUI at two in the morning was my brother. I knew he would be awake. And I was like, hey, I just got a DUI. And he's like, are you fucking kidding? And I was like, no, I just got a DUI. He's like, you know, that was dumb. And I was like, I know it was dumb, but I fucking got a DUI. And he's like, all right, are you okay? And I'm like, you know, I just talking to him like a normal person. I was just like, yeah, you know, whatever. And he's like, you're going to have to tell mom and dad. I'm like, I fucking know. Thanks. I, I understand that. And he's like, all right, but you're, you're safe. You're at home. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, okay, well, I'll talk to you tomorrow about it. Like, I'm just glad you're safe. And again, like that night, that whole 24 hours was like the first time that I was like, okay, this is like unconditional love. Like, because I fucked up on, in my head, the most monumental scale, but right. everyone still liked me. Nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah i mean thanks for sharing that i didn't know that uh you ever even really were had issues with any substance use um because obviously that's not the story or the narrative that i i learned about you yet Mm -hmm. you know to this point um that you're a family you know and harm reduction advocate and that's what i knew you know i knew about your your brother's um overdose and that that the path that led you down right Mm -hmm. but now how did that tie in though with like when your brother like with what well first off was that before your brother got into drugs yeah and then secondly how did that having that life experience of you know substance use uh 
for you, even because to me, even if it's a different substance, same devil, mm-hmm. different levels, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always thought that um, it all—they all eventually lead us down the same path if if we let it take us there. Um, and some of us can realize, you know, that the shit's a problem and we can change course. And some of us just are oblivious to it and can't recognize the problem. But so how how did that uh, end up affecting the way you dealt with it when your brother started having issues? Yeah. So um, after that happened, I quit my job. I ended up moving back home for about six months. And the timing of it ended up being so my license wasn't um, immediately suspended. Like, you know, I had pending court date and all that shit. Um, But during that time, my mom was going through radiation treatment for breast cancer. So then I also felt like an asshole because she has breast cancer. And here I am getting a fucking DUI. And um, it was getting to the point where when I moved home, she was going to start to have to go daily and um, Sierra Vista and Tucson are about an hour away from each other. And she had to go to Tucson every day. But the radiation was getting to the point where it was making her very weak and she could no longer drive. So now that I don't work, I would drive her back and forth for a month um, to go get her radiation. It was literally driving up there for 15 minutes, do radiation, come home. Uh, What ended up happening is my charges got dismissed. Um, I had to agree to plead guilty to not fully stopping at a stop sign. I had to do... um, I think it was like 16 hours of educate like um substance like education uh, i had to do a mothers against drunk driving meeting that's a fucking shitty meeting to go to mm-hmm. um how to do traffic school yeah it, it's it's not fun to feel like shit um and then i got my license suspended for 90 days so I really lucked out because Arizona after that got a really tough DUI law. And it's like, no matter what level you're at, mind you, I was like 0.09. The level here is 0.08 is the legal limit. So um, now I think it's mandatory, like 10 days in jail. Doesn't matter what level you are. So I was very lucky in that sense. But after that, the way I viewed drinking was very different. Like there's no fucking way I'm driving if I drink. And then I no longer saw alcohol as this, um, I'm not going to say coping mechanism, but I no longer was like, you know, I don't need this every time I go out. Like I can just be me, you know? Right. So, um, well, with and my the brother, pro- the programming that they made you go to mm-hmm. did job, right? It actually, oh yeah. If I could scare the, the shit out of me. Effect. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Because people were like, yeah, you know, this is, you know, there were people in that substance education class, like, Dave, this is your third time here. And he's like, I know, man. And I was just like, I can't keep coming here. Like, this is this is not good for me. So um, this happened a year, about a year before uh, my brother's accident. And uh, my brother, when he was ejected from the vehicle, he had uh, broken his pelvis and he was in a wheelchair for a couple months. So they had like screws that they had put in to stabilize his pelvis to heal. And then he was going to have another surgery to pull those screws out. Right. And during that time, he was given oxycodone and, um, you know, it was just like, here's a fucking 30 day supply or whatever it was, you know, you're in a wheelchair. And I remember my mom came to live with us for a little bit to help take care of him. But I, I do remember starting to notice towards the end of 
him being in the wheelchair, like he would just get real fucking angry about his pills because my mom would say, hey, let me hold on to your pills and then I'll give it to you when you need them. And he's like, I'm a fucking adult. I can handle my own pills. And I'm like, don't be a fucking dick. She's just trying to help you. You know, we would have these arguments over the fucking pills. And he's like, Jack, I'm an adult. I can handle my pills. I know when to take them. I'm like, okay, I have zero fucking clue. Oxycodone is that at that point, any oxy, anything is addictive. Like I'm not even, that's not even in my head. And um, what ends up happening is probably about a year later. Um, at this point, I had moved to Phoenix and I get a phone call from a friend of his that says, you know, I, I just need to give you a heads up. You know, your brother is starting to abuse the oxy. Like it's, he's not in a good spot. He's not, he's like buying it off the street now. And I was like, okay. And I'd never been faced with anything like this. And I'm thinking this is like a bomb of information. Once again, it's being given to me, not my parents. And he's just like, I just want to give you a heads up because, you know, I don't, I don't know if this is going to get worse, but he's just, he's not in a good spot. And I'm like, okay. And what did I do with it? Fucking nothing. Because I was fucking terrified. Like I texted him and I was like, Hey man, how's it going? He's like, Oh, I'm doing good. Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, well, he's responding. It can't be that bad. And that's like the denial starts right there. Yeah. It's one of those things where it's just like, I don't know how to approach this with you. I don't, I don't doubt that his friend is telling me the truth. I never once thought he was lying to me, but it's fucking uncomfortable. Like I, I, I'm thinking in my head, you're the fucker who just got a DUI. Who are you to fucking say anything to anyone, you know, about any sort of substance? Right. So, I sat on that information for a lot longer than I would want to admit. I don't even know how long I sat on that information before I finally told someone else in my family. Right. Um, but I did. I do remember the moment that I confronted him about it. It was me and my sister. We went into his room and I said, "Hey, I I know you're using drugs." And he's like, "I'm I'm trying to stop. You know, like I don't want to be like this." I don't like no one wants to be addicted to drugs, but I'm really trying to stop. You know, I'm really um, working on it and I'm going to get better. Like, I just don't want anyone to judge me. I don't want anyone to think anything of me. I said, I don't, I don't, I, if I can help you, let me know. He said, no, I will figure it out. I'll figure it out. Hmm. Okay. And um, that eventually led to him not figuring it out. Um, it led to shit getting more real with him, like in terms of like people he was hanging around were starting to come to my parents' house and my parents were starting to get like worried about shit. Um, shit started to go missing in our house, you know, and my parents were coming to me about this and not to him. And I'm, again, I'm the person who's holding all this information. I'm like, what the fuck do I do with this information? Am I going to go to my brother and go, hey, are you stealing mom's jewelry and selling it? Like, I, I don't know what to do with this. Yeah. Um, so, again. So what was that like for you? What was what was that making you feel? Um, it made me feel like total shit because it made me feel like I need to fix this. I have to be the one to fix it because I understand Mark better than my parents. And we can be, I can be more straight up with him. He's comfortable to talk to me about it. But also, 
I notice that his behavior is changing. You know, he's um, very different in the way that he's acting. He's just like a shell of who he was and um, just getting very uh, defensive, very mean, very aggressive. And at that time, I didn't understand that you know, that's, those are the drugs talking. Like I just assume he's turning into this giant asshole. Mm. So I tell my parents, Hey, I watched this show called intervention. I think we should do an intervention. Dumbest fucking thing I could have ever fucking suggested in my life, but I'm like, we should do an intervention. And I explain to them what it is. And they're like, are you sure we should do this? I was like, yes, because he needs help. Mm. So we, me and my husband, um, at the time, at the time, (laughs) he's still my fucking husband, um, (laughs) me and (laughs) my husband at the time before I killed him, me and my husband (laughs) drive down there and (laughs) we do this whole thing where I'm like, Mark, can you come in the living room? I'm like, and I tell my husband, stay in my room. Like, I don't want you to like worry and be a part of this. And he comes in the living room and we're like, we really want you to get help. Like we're worried about you. We want you to get help and um, you need to go to rehab or you have to leave. And he was like, you guys don't know what I fucking need. And I'm like, Ooh, we're going to get spicy right off the bat. And I'm like, well, uh, you're acting fucking again. So now I kick into big sister mode. I'm like, you're being a fucking dick to everyone. Uh, you're not getting better. Like you, you're, you're getting worse and he's like, I don't think you have any room to talk considering you got a DUI. And so like all mm. my shit that I was self-conscious about. And I was like, bro, that was fucking literally three years ago. And he's like, oh, but you still drink. I'm like, I still drink, but I don't drink the way that I used to drink. And he's like, I don't think you have any fucking place to say anything to me. So I like backed off because I was truly about to punch him in his face. Right. So then he starts arguing with my mom, arguing with my dad, arguing with my sister. I'd never seen this side of him before. And he was just so angry and so defensive. He's like, you guys have no fucking clue what it's like to go through this. Like, you can't just fucking go to rehab and everything will be solved. And that is true. Like, but at the time, all we knew is (laughs) intervention, go to rehab. They get better. Life is great. Like, that's what you see on fucking TV. I didn't know anyone who was going through this shit at the time that I was. And it's not something you go to your friends and go, hey, anybody else's brother using heroin? No, no. Okay. So it's not like this conversation that you can bring up because there's such a stigma attached to it. Right. So by the end of the conversation, he's like, well, if you want me to leave, I'm going to fucking move out. I'm moving to Phoenix and I'm going to go live with my friend and fuck you guys. And I was just like, you want fuck him. I don't want to fucking talk to him. I was pissed. I'm like, I'm leaving. Like he's being a fucking child. Um, you know, and obviously I don't know if this ever happened with you, but if someone ever confronted you about your use or anything like that, like you're going to get into a defensive mode. It was stupid in retrospect. I should have never fucking done it, but yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and too, when it's, when it's like my way or the highway kind of ultimatums getting thrown yep. at you, um, you know, hell or high water. We're going to do what we got to do to protect our habit, but we don't Mm -hmm. even realize that that's what we're trying to protect in the moment. It feels like I'm trying to like, it's, it's like, I'm trying to protect my ego, my pride, Mm -hmm. 
you know, mm-hmm. that, that, uh, I still have those glimmers in my mind and in my heart that I have some self-sufficiency left in me that I'm yeah. going to be able, I really believe that I'm going to be able to figure this out. I really believe that if it is a bad problem, that I'm going to recognize that and that I'm going to be able to change it. I don't realize yet that I'm an addict. I don't realize, I don't realize yet that I am powerless and that my life is going to become unmanageable. I just don't even have a clue that that's, that shit is reality for me right now. And that like sounds like where he was at, where he was like, dude, I got this, you know, like what the fuck is your guys' problem, you know? Exactly. And, And when you have them angry outbursts and stuff, it's like, it's, dude, it's insidious. It's cunning, baffling, powerful, all those things that they say for for the addict because we don't realize we're we're doing what we're doing yes you know or like the true reason is kind of hidden from us and disguised as some kind of more uh yeah i guess i don't know understandable reason to us you know like i think you guys are really overreacting and acting like fucking right you know (laughs) dramatic you know Mm -hmm. and it's pissing me off Exactly. And, and like that's why I think I'm mad. And when the one of the biggest things that I used to tell myself when I was, you know, in my active addiction, uh, when these things would happen, is that when when I would tell myself that it's not that big of a deal, mm-hmm. I would get so ramped up about that. Mm-hmm. The funny thing, when I got when I first started my recovery, I had that kind of moment, mm-hmm. and it was uh over these bedtime beers it was uh when i was first because i don't know i i kept relapsing at first but then after a while i did put the needle down i did put the you know the rocks down Mm -hmm. but i was still you know having like a bedtime beer and sometimes Mm -hmm. i wouldn't even finish the beer sometimes i wake up in the morning and there's like a half a beer still in the thing yeah i and i would be studying my literature and taking notes and you know regular listeners of the show have heard this story a couple times but you haven't i don't think and i'm Mm -hmm. like i'm sitting there telling myself you know when uh these guys i wanted my sponsor who's my sponsor now to work with me he was like you got to give up those bedtime beers man Mm -hmm. and uh you're gonna have to come clean about that too you know and Mm -hmm. like reset your date and just get mm-hmm. honest in the rooms about about that, you know, because it's a reservation and you got to let it go. And I was like, OK, and I played it off cool when we talked about it. But I was for like two weeks. I was telling myself that it wasn't that big of a deal. And what yeah. happened? I kept getting more and more pissed about it. And then I eventually talked to myself into like, if I'm going to fucking do that and concede to this argument that I'm going to make it worth it because this shit shouldn't count. Mm-hmm. You know, that's really what I thought. And to your point, you know, earlier too, you said with the harm reduction, you know, when your brother would quit the shit, but then he was doing, you know, smoking some weed or drinking that you considered him in recovery. And why wouldn't you? Because he was Mm -hmm. considering himself that way and maybe not in recovery, but you know, like I'm better now I'm doing better. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Boy, that was, that was the whole thing. I was like, well, I'm going to make it worth it then because this shit Mm -hmm. shouldn't count, which is a ridiculous statement in a ridiculous thought but i didn't understand until i went ahead and i was going to do this birthday weekend and i went a day early so like i smoked some weed and i drank like maybe a six pack that night and i had a tingy little little tinge of a hangover the next day 
mm-hmm. I could not get out of my fucking head about it. I felt like shit. I ended up calling Mike, my sponsor, and I told him, dude, you know, I told him what had happened. I told him how I had been feeling. So I came clean about that, too, that, you know, I was actually really pissed off after we talked about that outside the meeting that night, mm-hmm. you know, and and I didn't think that it was that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. And so because if it's not that big of a deal, this is the counterintuitive part. If it's not that big of a deal, then what the fuck are you so angry about? Right. Right. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. But I didn't see it that way. Mm-hmm. I just was frustrated because it wasn't mm-hmm. a big deal, whatever that mm-hmm. means. And uh, so I told him what happened. I told him how I'd been feeling. And then I told him no more beer, beers, bro. And then I had to get to the business of deciding what to do next. Cause now it's the morning of my birthday and we're supposed to fucking turn it up tonight. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, not, I'm already like, no, I'm, I'm not even partying tonight. I'm done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I made this decision right then and there that I'm giving up the reservations finally. Mm-hmm. So then I have to go back home and tell people. And so I did that in the meetings and I expected people to like judge me and think I was a piece of shit, but no, they didn't. They were like, dude, that's so cool. You're like strongest person ever it blew my fucking mind. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, what? But yeah, <laughs> it was, it was then the whole mm-hmm. point of that long, long, long story. It was probably a short story. I made long is that, <laughs> <laughs> is that you know i didn't think it was a big deal but when right. i went back in the rooms and i told people about it and i reset the date and i started new um i physically felt the weight lift off of me yeah yeah and that was the moment that was the mm-hmm. moment when i realized that thing that wasn't a big deal mm-hmm. was like a physically noticeable weight that i was carrying around yeah you know and then i was now like i threw it on the ground you know i like dropped them chains Mm -hmm. so that was the whole point of the short long story (laughs) but But it it, but no you're you're absolutely right in in the sense that you know it wasn't aware no had no fucking clue and i remember um i remember being so pissed at him it was the most mad i've ever been at him in in my life and i remember driving back up and i was like you know what fuck him if he's gonna fucking act like that we're just trying to help him he wants to turn us away and he's gonna get mad at us because we care about him fuck him and i ended up calling out of work for the next couple days because i was so fucking upset and sad i literally just stayed in bed for about three days because Mm. i thought our fucking we've never gone through anything like this and we've always had an amazing friendship relationship brother sister connection we've always had this and this is the first time we are ever fucking fighting about something and now he's living in my city but he won't fucking answer my calls because he's pissed at me and i felt like shit and um you know there there was a point where um, he ended up getting like Suboxone off the street. And I remember thinking, you know, should you really do that? Like, but I don't know the fucking you know, world. I don't know what. And he's like, no, it helps with withdrawals. Like, trust me, I know what I'm doing. And at this point, I was just going to back off. And I was like, fine, you fucking figure it out. Mm-hmm. And I remember while he was living up here with his friend, we met out, met up for dinner. And he was a he was himself. He was back. You know, he hadn't been using for probably a couple months at that point. And he just looked amazing. Just the same fucking width. We just clicked. There was no 
animosity. And I think that's the other thing, too, with family. Like when we got back together, seeing each other for the first time since that blow up, nothing had changed. Like it was just like hug. Oh, my God. Have you seen this? Have you watched this? Da, da, da. You know, just catching up and bullshitting. So I remember thinking, holy fuck, he's good. We're good. Like, I'm so glad he figured it out. And that, that was just the first of many recovery relapse times you know it was um it turned into something where shit would get worse at certain points and um i remember one specific night uh i and again we would talk off and on um i would try to check in and talk with him about it but sometimes he don't want to talk with me about it because it's like you don't understand because Truly, what I thought is that if someone just goes to rehab, they'll be fine. Like, I don't understand. Like, why wouldn't you want to go to this place that will make you better if you want to be better? But that's my own ignorant dumbass because I didn't fucking know, like, how it worked. You know, I just assumed if you go to this treatment facility, you're going to be fine. So I don't know why the fuck you're fighting us on this. And he would always say, like, that's not always going to be the way to do it. Like, he was he was a very smart person. Like, that doesn't always work for everyone. You have to understand that may not necessarily work. There may be other things that will help me. And I'm like, I don't know. I really think you need to go to this rehab place. Like, you know, and that's all I kept fucking saying. And I was just that me. I would say that my dad, my mom, we were all just like, rehab, rehab. And he was just like, fuck off. No, like, oh, that's not necessarily the answer. So there was a, I went home for Thanksgiving and I remember, um, we go out to this bar and again, we hadn't talked in a couple months at that point, but again, I walk in the house and he's like, sup, I'm like, sup, just back to normal. You know, nothing's fucking changed. I'm like, Hey, you want to go to JR's? This like small fucking bar in our town and hang out. He's all fuck. Yeah, let's go. And I'm like, okay. So we're, you know, hanging out, having a few drinks. And then I go, so will you just like consider going to rehab? And he's like, I don't want to fucking do this right now. And I was like, dude. And then we get into this giant argument in this middle of the fucking bar. And my, my husband's like the awkward third wheel, just standing there, like sipping his beer. Like this is fucking awkward because I don't want him to be a part of this conversation. Right. So we're yelling back and forth um, in the middle of a fucking bar. And I eventually scream and I'm just like, I don't want you to fucking die. I cannot lose you. Like, please just fucking try this for me. And he eventually like broke down crying. I broke down crying and he's like, okay, like I'll go. Like I will, I will go for you and I'll give it a try. And I thought like, this is the best fucking day ever. You know, it was like the first day I had felt relief since finding out he was using and um, he did go to rehab um and i would go and visit him every night during visiting hours and he would talk about like all the stuff he's been reflecting on and you know we would literally cry every night i'd hold his hand across the table we would cry and talk about he was processing all these new emotions and understand like why am i doing this and um unfortunately since he was under state insurance like medicaid at day 13 they're like we're not going to pay anymore you have to leave today and what yeah. And I get this call from him. He's like, Jack, they're not going to pay anymore. And I was like, what are you fucking talking about? And, he, and I don't know if it's because they were out of network. I don't know what the fuck the reasoning was, but they're like, your insurance is not going to pay anymore. 
And if you want to continue to go here, it's going to be like, I think it was some astronomical amount, like a thousand dollars a day, $1,500 a day. And I told him, I said, we can put it on my credit card. I don't fucking care. Like if you're doing well, I want you to continue. And he's like, no, fuck this place. Like I'm, I'm good. I'm in a good spot. I'm like, I don't think you are, but like, let me, he's like, I'm not going to have you pay for my mistakes. So I'm just going to go if they're, they're not going to pay for it. And he's like, I'm not going to have mom and dad pay for this shit. I'm just going to go home. And all I'm thinking is Mm. you cannot go back home. Like you can't go back to that environment. You can't go back to those people. So then I asked my husband, we'd been married, I don't know, maybe a year. And I'm like, can my brother move in with us? And he's like, yeah, of course. You know, like I thought I was going to have to do this whole case as to why, you know, present my case. And obviously this is why I married him. So I'm like, okay, so you're cool with this because this is going to be like intense because, you know, I'm going to be a fucking like drill sergeant about this shit. He's like, yeah, no, it's fine. And he lived with us for a couple months. And every day I'd be like, how are you feeling today? Like, are you feeling like the urge? Are you doing okay? What's going on? I was always checking in with him, um, which is something that unfortunately didn't really happen at my house because my parents are in that, like, I think it's just that generation, like ignorance is bliss. Like if we don't bring it up all the time and you seem to be functioning okay, then you're probably okay. Um, but it was definitely a topic that made them uncomfortable or sometimes my brother would just get super fucking defensive. Even as a kid, he would just fucking, he just had a fucking temper about shit. So if he had a temper as a fucking kid, you know, imagine how he is under, you know, if he's using like that temper is just on another level. Right. So it, um, those two months were fucking fantastic. Like he was not using, we were fucking watching YouTube videos of people getting scared and laughing at them and like, haha, you fucking idiots and watching videos about conspiracy theories and ghosts and all sorts of like just dumb shit, you know? And it was just like, Oh my God, I have my fucking brother back. This is amazing. Right. And, um, we ended up going, my husband and I went to Vegas for a couple nights and I'd held on to some of his pills cause he was taking, um, he had, PTSD, depression, anxiety, and Xanax was one of his pills. And so I was holding on to his pills and he calls me and he's like, where the fuck are you? I was like, I'm in Vegas. Like I originally told you fucking two days ago. He's like, well, I need my Xanax. I'm like, I gave you enough Xanax that should last you. And he's like, well, I need more fucking Xanax. I'm like, don't fucking talk to me like that. And he's like, where the fuck's my Xanax? I want my Xanax. And I'm like, okay. It's in this drawer. I know how many pills exactly are in there. I didn't. I fucking lied. I said, I know how many pills are in there. If you take more than what you say you are, like, we're going to have a fucking problem. He's like, well, they're my fucking pills, but yeah, okay, we're fine. And we got into this fucking argument over fucking Xanax. And when I got home, I remember um, being like, are you okay? And he's like, yeah, no, I'm fine. He's like, I'm going to go home for the weekend because it was his dog's birthday. He's like, I'm going to go home for the weekend. I was like, okay, cool. I'll, you know, I'll see you on Monday. And he never came back up and he went back into active use. And I will say that was the first time where I felt like I had the epiphany of that. I could do everything. I could control every variable in this situation. I could have him check in with me. If 
fucking morning, noon, and night. But the hold that addiction has on him is much greater than what I can fucking do. Right. So it was finally the first time where I felt like I can't, like I've done everything I can. Mm. And it, it was almost like um, I was able to let go of some guilt that I'd been carrying because I finally realized like, this is bigger than fucking me. This is bigger than having a controlled environment. Like this is a big fucking deal. Right. Um. Well, and, and it's funny because conversely to the addict who finds recovery um, one of the biggest things that we have to contend with in the beginning of our journey is that we can't, we have no control. We, we, yeah. we can't control literally almost anything. Right. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> that's where the serenity prayer comes in. You know, it's like, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Mm-hmm. And that wisdom you'll find out is that you can't control anything. Like I can control, I can't even control the thoughts that come in my head, but yeah. I can control the behavior that I put behind them. Mm-hmm. I can't control the feelings that I feel, but I can mm-hmm. control whether or not I act on them, you know, like, mm-hmm. and I, and, and if it's not, you know, something that has to do with my behavior, or my environment, mm-hmm. I literally have no control over any of it. Yeah. Especially when you're talking about other people. So exactly. It's funny how uh once you get that concept and can accept it as truth, how freeing it is. It was. And how much shit you can let go. And that's mm-hmm. you know, same, same, just you're on the other side. Exactly. And it was something where it was just like this isn't my job because I can't do it. You know, this is something that he will need to do for himself and I can be every bit of supportive. I can do everything in the fucking world to support him, but he has to want to do it as well. And again, like you said, it was very freeing for me, but it was also really sad because again, I'm the most responsible. I have fixed every fucking problem. I have helped every fucking way this entire time he's been alive. And this <laughs> is the one thing I can't fucking fix. Well, and it was you've a had very... an illusion, right? You've had an yeah. illusion of control. And now you have to yep. grieve the death of that illusion. Exactly. Exactly. Because I thought my parents just don't know how to fucking like lock his ass down. Right. I do. So let's do it my way since you guys kind of tiptoe around it. Because if he starts to kind of get mad and agitated, they don't want to like provoke him more. So they would just kind of like lean back where I'd be like, bro, let, let's fucking real talk right now. Like what's going on? So I felt, well, I have the better way to connect with him. I will lock him down, but in a way to where he'll tell me the truth, you know, he's not going to, cause he can't fucking lie to me. So we'll do it my way. And obviously it'll work. And it I did pushed it. Him away. Yeah. And um, it really fucking sucked because it's like, it was it's shitty to let that weight go um because it's like okay i really don't have control over this you know what sucks Um, is that the i mean and i could be wrong but i doubt mm -hmm. it and that's not trying to be like sound (laughs) cocky but like from what i'm hearing like what probably the deal was was that time that he was with you 
you know, he wasn't trying to get fucked up, mm-hmm. but he was maintaining, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And unfortunately, the further we get into addiction, the more it requires just for the maintenance, right? Yes. I'm not even mm-hmm. using this shit to get high, but I have to use X amount to stay even keel, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's like, he, you know, whether or not his prescription for the Xanax was enough to mm-hmm. uh, keep him on that maintain maintainable level mm-hmm. or not is going to always be a question mark because that's some shit that like I used to sell. Like mm-hmm. you can buy Xanax on the streets. People are fucking addicted to Xanax, you know? Oh, oh. yeah. So mm-hmm. like my point being is that like that you said it was in a wonderful two months. Mm-hmm. But it was a wonderful two months. And that's awesome that you're blessed with that time. But I'm what I'm trying to say is that it, it seems to me or it sounds to me like he was being slick. Mm-hmm. And this was a situation where all of a sudden, you know, he's like back in the corner, cat in the corner, whatever. He's asking mm-hmm. for his shit. And and the the conversation you had made him feel like you're trying to control shit. Yep. Mm -hmm. So that's why he bounced the fuck out. Absolutely. And that's totally what it was because that was the first time that we, I had not been at home for those two months prior. I'd been at home and he, since he was a kid, he does not like to be told what to fucking do. If you want him to do something, he'll be like, maybe. So he's always had that mentality. And for me to then, probably just sound like my fucking mom he was just like no we're not gonna fucking do this right and um yeah it fucking sucked he moved back home with my parents and and again he was like in and out of recovery and then there was a point where i get a phone call from my dad and he said mark's been shot and he's being airlifted to the hospital and i said is he okay like where he's like he was shot in the leg he's being responsive whatever so my heart fucking sinks and i try to call his cell phone and he's fucking high i can just tell that he is and he's like this is fucking bullshit i was at my friend's house like they got into a fight over shoes is that the real thing i don't fucking know got into a fight over shoes and he whipped out this gun and fucking shot me and he got shot in the leg, got straight through. I mean, it was something where there was no complications. It was like probably the most perfect gunshot that could go through someone without zero complications. Mm. But he was so fucking out of it at the time. And he's just like, fuck this. I can't believe he was so focused on this dude who shot him. He was like, he's a fucking jerk. I can't fucking believe this. And he's just going on this tangent. I'm like, you just got fucking shot, dude. Like when, like, are this, this was about shoes. And he's like, yeah, this is about fucking shoes. And I just remember him screaming and like, all right, dude, like call me when you're out of the fucking ER. And I'm thinking like, here's his rock bottom. He got fucking shot. This is it. Like he's good. He'll be fine. No, he was fucking annoyed. He got shot. He was annoyed that he had to go to the hospital and he was annoyed that probably his high got fucked up. That's probably what it was. Um, But I remember I'm like, hey, so like, you know, are you going to change shit up? Like, you know, most people don't get shot. 
And, <laughs> you know, like, that's not like a, I got into a fender bender. Like, like I got did shot you in realize, the leg. Did, yeah. did you stop and think that this <laughs> shit ain't normal? Right. Like, did you know that most people don't get shot while hanging out at their friend's house? So he, it did not compute though, because, you know, he was in his active use. He's like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. It was over shoes. I had nothing to do with drugs. I'm like, okay, like fine. And, um, <laughs> So that that was not a rock bottom. Again, you hear all this shit as a person who is not, you know, surface level education. Well, they just got to hit rock bottom, you know, once they hit that rock bottom, that's when they'll be ready. And so I'm just waiting for this bottom to hit. And I'm like, maybe he'll go to jail. Maybe, you know, and my dad's like, well, maybe he needs to go into the military. I'm like, what are you fucking talking about? No, he's not going to the military. He's like, yeah, but I mean, like, you know, if he goes to boot camp, that's time away. And I'm like, no, you're just trying to like substitute boot camp for rehab. Like this is not going to work. So me and my dad are scheming and plotting. Like, how are we going to get him sober? My dad's promising him concert tickets. Like, Hey, if you go to rehab, I'll buy you concert tickets. Like it's fucking stupid at this point. It's really stupid at this point. The level of desperation we all have. And um, I think it's instructive and it, and it really is a clear illustration of how sick the family gets alongside mm-hmm. of the addict you know we get sick exactly together and that's why you're on the show you know right because you got you got sick with with him mm-hmm. and and after uh his yeah. tragic untimely death you got sicker but now you know of course as we are we're all about the hope shot here the way out you know we want it we want it you know that's why I wanted you on because it's like, yeah. you're doing all this cool shit now to help mm-hmm. other people, you know? Right. And it's and fucking awesome. It, yeah. And I mean, is it something that I would ever think I would do? Like when he died, I remember, you know, getting that phone, like all the shit. And I finally got to my parents' house, obviously could not sleep. And the first thing I did was, is there some sort of like addiction support? Is there support for people like me? Because again, I'm thinking, how do I get through this grief? Like, what can I fucking do to help myself? And uh, I find Shatterproof and they're like, hey, we're, we fight stigma. And I was like, holy fuck, there's an actual, there's an organization that actually talks about this. So I remember thinking, you know, when I get to a better spot mentally, I'm, I'm going to reach out and see what this is about. And, uh, you know, when I, and mind you, like, you know, his funeral, all that shit, like, it's just all a fucking whirlwind. And another shitty, another shitty piece to that is when he died, he died in November. The last time I saw him and actually talked to him was in June. And we weren't in a shitty spot to where we were fighting. And that's why we didn't reach out to each other. There would just be periods of time where like, he's deep in his depression and would not reply to texts or, I just honestly didn't want to deal with it, you know, so I, I'm in a good spot in my life. Like exhausted. Probably. Yeah, exactly. So it's like having that and putting on this front, because, of course, to the social media world, I wasn't telling everyone, hey, my brother's suffering from addiction. Hey, my brother relapsed again. I'm not telling people this. I'm like, oh, I lost five pounds and I'm doing great and you got to have a positive mentality. I'm trying to project this person that I'm wanting to be. I'm sitting there and I'm saying, you know, you just got to fucking rain makes rainbows, whatever the fuck I'm doing. You know, I'm trying to be this fucking person to like 
try and convince myself like you can get through this. And um, so when he passed away, I had not talked to him and that really fucked me up on top of it because there was no reason why we didn't talk. It was just us being lazy or depressed or whatever the fuck our problems were. And I didn't, I didn't have that closure. So then you go through this fucking funeral and you go through all that bullshit and then going back to work. And I remember thinking, no one's talking about him anymore. Like the funeral has passed. The holidays have passed. And now no one's talking about him. So I'm like, well, I'm going to fucking talk about him because like that, that's not life. We don't just have a funeral and everyone moves the fuck on. Like I'm a fucking train wreck. Like I was having health issues. Like the grief was taking its toll on me. And, um, you know, there were periods where I was so fucking sick. I didn't realize I had asthma at the time. My doctor kept telling me I had GERD because I had acid reflux. I'm like, bro, that's not GERD. And I'm like, I literally go into coughing fits every night before bed. I can't sleep through the night. And I literally cough so hard that I vomit. He's like, it might be GERD. I'm like, it's not fucking GERD, bro. But he kept saying like, oh, I think it's GERD. I think it's GERD. I'm like, I don't think so. So I'm trying out all these fucking medications i'm it's literally physically taking a toll on me and then i'm pissed that no one's talking about him so i'm like you know what i'm gonna do like a one mile walk in his honor like at the six month mark i'm gonna do a one mile uh walk i'm gonna call it mark smile and i'm gonna raise money i thought i'm gonna raise two thousand dollars for shatterproof to talk about addiction and stigma and all that but i had not said anything to anyone on social media everyone just knew my brother passed away i didn't say he died of an overdose so finally, on my birthday, which was March, he died in November, I didn't know how else to talk about it other than I just posted my eulogy, where I go through his entire life and then I talk about him. And then the whole point was he was more than you know his substance use. Like He was a fucking person. And I'm going to keep talking about this because this is a big fucking deal and this doesn't just affect me. It affects a lot of fucking families. Yeah. And people are too afraid to talk about this and it's too stigmatized and you might want to judge me. You might want to judge my parents. You might want to judge all of us, but trust me, it's not, it's, it doesn't have any reflection on us or him or whatever it may be. Um, so I started doing this and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to speak out. And I wrote fucking blog posts and I'm like, you know, here's my fucking brother. And I'm, grieving and I'm talking about my grief and people are probably like creeped out because I keep talking about my fucking dead brother and grief and all this other shit. But I'm just wanting to be open about it because no one is open and talks about grief. Usually it's like, oh, you know, rest in peace. You're in a better place. And then we never hear about him again. And I'm still fucking going through it. So I eventually get to the point where, um, you know, Shatterproof is like, Hey, we're going to do a 5K event in LA, which is where we're from. And we'd love for you to speak at it. And I'm thinking, what the fuck? Like, speak at, like, talk about the stigma and talk about how the loss has affected you. And it was the week before his one year, like, death day. Oh, and wow. I thought, this is going to be perfect. It's going to be like, this was all meant to be again, because I'm delusional and stupid. So I'm thinking this is going to be so healing. I'm going to go to this event. I'll give this great speech. A lot of people are going to be inspired to be more open about this and blah, blah, blah. I give this speech. It is great. I'm not going to lie. 
and then <laughs> and then I'm afterwards sure <laughs> afterwards it's just like a fuck the fucking downfall of me because i had invested so much time and energy into distracting myself from the grief to always um my have my calendar full always have shit going on and in reality i thought you know this giving this speech is going to be this amazing healing thing and it wasn't it was nothing there was nothing fucking great about it yeah i mean it was great to talk about it but there was no closure or you know there wasn't any of that i don't know what what i was expecting clearly i was wrong but dude i, I just when my my first time i ever spoke Mm-hmm. was at a meeting and it was like an hour and some odd minutes away uh it's in a town in minnesota called watertown like really tiny town okay and friend, it was a friend of mine one of her home groups and she invited me to go speak at it this was before i worked any steps this was before i really did any of the deep inner work to mm-hmm. heal to heal you know um i was very new to therapy so I was barely scratching the surface on that shit. Um, I hadn't taken any of the classes that, you know, and all, or all the trainings and things that I've taken. It was, it was like super early in my recovery. And I remember going and it was like all horror story. It was like every fucked up thing that ever happened to me. And it like maybe like a couple minutes of like, but now I've been sober for this long and, you know, it's, it's tough, but I have hope that it's going to get better. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not going to lie. Like I had one guy get up and said that was exactly what he needed to hear, which mm-hmm. shocked me. And, mm-hmm. but you know, other than that, I just had a bunch of old timers come up to me and tell me that, you know, like it's going to get better. And I remember going outside after and everybody's like, you did so good. You did so good. Like my friends that came to support me, and I was like, thanks, thanks. And I was just really quiet, man. And I felt like I just freaking ran through, a, you know, bunch, like I just ripped open every wound and yes. I was just bleeding all over myself, you know, is what mm-hmm. I felt like. I was like, this doesn't feel good. And I wish that I didn't do it. Right. <laughs> exactly. And I because af- yeah, because afterwards, if you don't heal first, then mm-hmm. you know, once you heal and you can share that in a, in its but you can deliver this message with this great hope along yes, with it. You know what I exactly. mean? Exactly. And it's like in my head, I thought, well, I've raised this money for shatterproof. So like, that's my hope. But in reality, everything had been so focused on my brother and the loss of my brother and how it affected me. And I was ignoring me and what I needed and what I needed to do. And I had been fucking working to remind everyone hey my brother existed i'm still fucked up like don't expect me to go back to me because a lot of people would reach out and be like hey are you feeling better no my brother's fucking dead still like people were just waiting for old jacqueline to come back and so you know like oh when are you gonna start posing funny shit or whatever the fuck it was you know but Mm. then i realized that my grief counseling that whole time frame now changed into fucking therapy for me because i was like okay now uh i thought i do i was gonna do all this shit i've been doing grief counseling literally every fucking week since the month after he died i've been doing all this work why the fuck am i not healed yet and 
I'm not healed because I didn't focus on me. Everything was talking about my brother and the relationship with that. There was no fucking talk of me. Right. So then in therapy, I finally start to talk about me. And, uh, you know, I was or, talking or like about even just finding shatterproof. Right. And thinking, yeah, here's something I can get on board with. Yeah. And now you're trying to, you know, align yourself with their mission. Exactly. And, and mm-hmm. go ahead and do that. Mm-hmm. But and, and it's not to say that there wasn't because you probably helped a lot of people by doing that, even though you did it uh prematurely i'm glad that i'm glad to hear that it eventually led you down you know if anything that experience like opened your eyes to the fact that you needed to focus on you Mm -hmm. you know it it exposed uh painfully it exposed the fact that you needed to really work at your healing that you weren't Mm -hmm. healed It, it it let you know uh and i'm grateful to hear that that happened and that you you were able to start to push yourself more towards focusing on you mm-hmm. but yeah it's like you kind of just skipped a step you know you can't you can't go advocate right i mean you can clearly because you did mm-hmm. but it can be dangerous to do that absolutely and it and it totally was because then you're just kind of um you're constantly just kind of exposing yourself to trauma porn you know it's like Oh, I lost my brother too to an overdose. And then I'm just in this world where it's immersed where you're just talking about this person overdosed, this person overdosed. Yeah, I lost my person. And I'm trying to help other people because I'm that codependent bitch. So I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I totally understand. Yeah, I'm not setting those boundaries, you know, because then the fact that I was so open with my grief, people would reach out to me and go, you know, I really appreciate how open you are. I remember when my grandma died and there'd just be messages and messages i'm like bro your grandma dying is not the same as my brother fucking dying you know and i would not say that i would be like oh i'm so sorry how you know i know it's how hard you know i was just being a fucking codependent person you know i turned into this therapist for other people because they thought well she's so open about it i know i can talk to her and then it just came flooding. It wasn't fucking healthy for me. And right. I'm. And this is why it can be dangerous mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. to skip the heal the deep inner work part before mm-hmm. before you put yourself out there like that. I'm not, you know. I just I know that it just tripped me out hearing you explain it because I was like, dude, that's what I did. You know, like I thought I could go speak at this meeting, right? And that it was gonna be this fucking awesome spiritual experience and it fucking hurt and it fucking Mm -hmm. sucked and i was like in a really dark place for a few days because it brought up all my trauma and stuff like full front and center Mm -hmm. where i was just all fucked up about it you know i mean i remember my friend maddie like rubbing my shoulder you know and like giving me a hug and just like we're sitting there quiet because what words what words can you have you know yeah but she was like when she realized that i was like really like in a lot of pain after walking out of that meeting you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and i think she even thought because you know we put up good fronts we're master manipulators us addicts and i mean i think human beings in general are to be honest oh yeah but uh you know like i think maybe she thought i was in a better spot than i was and i think i did too I thought I was mm-hmm. in a better spot than I was 
like to your point, you know, you weren't expecting to have that experience. You Mm -mm. thought the same thing that it was going to be great. And then when you get off stage, you're like, fuck. Yeah. Exactly. Like I remember all sorts of fucked up. Exactly. I went into this fucking shutdown mode. I went um, like other shit ends up happening where I end up getting an autoimmune disease. I was in the hospital for a fucking week. Like it's literally the mental and physical downfall of myself. And it was to the point where I got home and I was on so much. I don't know if you've ever been on like high doses of prednisone or dexamethasone before. But steroids fuck you up. They really fuck you up. Like the side effect list is, I don't know, four miles long. And so it was so bad because I was on so much steroids because my immune system was attacking myself so much that I couldn't walk more than like inch by inch because the second I would try to take a bigger step, all the muscles in my legs would cramp up and I would fall to the ground. So here I am. Two to three weeks, I rent a wheelchair. Wow. I'm in the grocery store. I'm in a fucking wheelchair. And I'm like, this is forcing me to slow down. My body's finally like, yo, bitch, hi, we've done everything to tell you to slow down. Now we're going to take you out. And so the universe was like, here's a disease. Enjoy. Since You're you wouldn't bad. fucking listen, you dumbass. So <laughs> here I am. And I'm now physically being oh. forced to slow down and prednisone keeps you awake at night. So then I start thinking about all my shit. The worst thing you can do is just ruminate on all your shit. I can, I can only sleep two hours a night at most. And I'm thinking about all these things and I'm going through everything. And then all of a sudden I wake up one day and I go, you know what? I can't fucking control anything. I can't control anything. All I can control is how I feel and how I act. And tomorrow's not promised. All I literally have is this fucking moment. Mm. So I'm going to just be in this moment and I'm going to give myself grace and just allow myself to heal. And at the time I was thinking in my head physically heal, but it was also like this mental heal of like, okay, everyone knows you love your brother. Like, you know, you don't need to prove that you were a good sister. And I think what I was trying to do is prove to people, because again, in my head, I didn't talk to him in his final months that before he died. And I'm a fucking shitty Felt sister like and I didn't save him. Sister. Exactly. And so if I do all these things, it lets everyone know that, hey, I'm a really great sister. And I try to convince myself that I'm a really great sister, but it wasn't mm-hmm. doing that. Isn't and that funny uh, how you can you can adopt that mindset. You can set out on this mission, not really knowing that you're trying to seek the outside validation exactly which is going to somehow magically redeem you (laughs) but it will never redeem you because you will never let yourself be redeemed you will never feel redeemed so it doesn't fucking matter none of this matters (laughs) nope it really doesn't and to come to that realization there was this book that i um i don't know if you've ever heard of this book it's called the power of now and um, it was a book I tried to read a couple years earlier, but it was just like some deep fucking shit where it's like, all you have is this moment and you have your ego. If you can set your ego aside, I was like, this is too much. Fuck this book. And so I put it away. So <laughs> here I am now in like, you know, can't walking land. I was like, let me try this book again. 
And now this shit's like registering with me. I was like, holy fuck, all we have is this fucking moment. Like, I need to set my shit aside. Like, I don't need to fucking worry about and focus on the past and what a shitty sister I quote may have been and what's going to happen. I need to fucking live in the now. And I remember, um, (laughs) I, so I'm a Packers fan. I know you're in Minnesota. Sorry. Bull. We got our asses kicked today. That's I hate you. No, I'm just kidding. I don't care. <laughs> this this interview's fucking over. I'm not a big, um, big football guy. I gave so, up on the Vikings in '98. But anyway, <laughs> proceed. So, um, the Packers were in like the NFC Championship game. I remember that. I was so zen out because we were getting our asses kicked by the 49ers that I just started reading my Power of Now book. Old Jacqueline would be losing her shit at the TV, fucking chugging more beer, blah, blah, like just losing her mind. Here I am just I'm like, well, I can't control this. And I'm just reading my book. And my husband's like, are you fucking OK? I'm like, bro, it's out of my hands. I can't do anything about this. <laughs> and I'm literally just fucking zenned out. And I remember like when my brother first died, I told my husband, I said, do not let me become dependent on a substance. If you see me start to go down some path where it's not healthy, you need to fucking check my ass. And I will say since that time, like in the three years he's been gone, it's the least I've drank in my entire life um, because I'm not using it in the way that I used to. Like if I have it, I'm like, oh, I'll have a cocktail and why not? Whatever. But it's um, I found other ways I found therapy. I mean, let's right. be honest for you. Like therapy and how to manage my shit, how to manage my anxiety, my depression, my PTSD, all that shit. And um, that's why I loved our interview and the fact that you've gone through so much therapy because I feel like people who have gone through a lot of therapy, like you can understand each other a lot more in the sense of like, I, I can't control this, so I need to let it go and right. I can control me. And you know, speaking in those terms while like other people might think like it's fucking hippie talk or whatever, but it's not like right. it's all about trying to figure out your emotions and what and realizing that you don't have control for someone who's always tried to have control is very uh, it's a mind fuck. So yeah, it is learning it, to it is let free. go of that. It's free yeah, exactly. Let go, you know, because really what you come to find out is how much of the stuff was never yours to carry to begin with. Exactly. And then when you think about the shit, like the regretting of the past or or the shame, the guilt, the things that you keep rehashing, it's mm-hmm. like literally that is so, it requires so much of your energy and nothing could ever change what's already been done. Exactly. And then, and, and then when you can understand the things that you can control versus the things you can't, which is literally like 98% of shit mm-hmm. you can't control <laughs> that, right. that you can really start to prioritize what, what's deserving of your energy, you know, moving forward. Exactly. Exactly. And like when, um, you know, again, so I get out of my autoimmune, I'm in a better spot. I get this invite for mobilized recovery in like 2020. And I'm like, well, I don't have fucking shit to do. I'm stuck at home and it's virtual. So why not? Let's, I have PTO to burn. Let's do it. And I remember thinking, all right, this is my foray back into advocacy, you know, like, cause I had pretty much stepped back from 
shatterproof in really much of anything. I stepped back from a lot of shit. And I remember thinking, maybe I don't belong here because everything's about recovery. Like, I'm not in fucking recovery. Like, my brother's not in recovery. He's the opposite. So I don't belong here. And I, I've i told this story probably six million times, but <laughs> I remember... Not to me, you haven't. Ha ha, all you people. And anyone who's already heard this is like, are you fucking kidding me, this story again? Here we so, go. Um, <laughs> so I'm I remember... Excited. In mobilized recovery, you know, you go into everything's on fucking Zoom. We go into a breakout room and there's three other women in there and they're all in recovery. They all work in the field. Here I am. I'm a shatterproof ambassador. You know, like I, I feel like a fucking loser. You talked like that? Yeah, I did. I said it in that tone. <laughs> so, um, you know, everyone's like introducing themselves and I was like, I'm just going to be straight up here. I don't think I should fucking be here. Like I was just shatterproof said, Hey, do you want to do this? I'm not in recovery. My brother died of an overdose. I don't really think like this is a fucking thing I need to do. And they're like, well, you are in recovery. Like you're recovering from the loss of your brother. Like that's going to be the rest of your life. And I was like, huh? And she's like, you totally belong here. And like family members do belong here. And I remember thinking, that's pretty fucking cool. Like I'm thinking this whole time I'm going to be so out of place and no one's going to fuck it. The girl are going to be like, Oh, you're the said grieving girl, you know, whatever. And instead grieving girl, <laughs> grieving, sad girl. And that's going to be the name of this <laughs> podcast. Grieving, grieving girl. Sad. No, I'm just grieving kidding. Gr- I, won't, <laughs> I won't do that. But that's it's a superhero. Funny. It's got <laughs> a good ring to it. Yeah, but. it really does. Um, <laughs> and I remember like going through the rest of the conference and being like really empowered and thinking about advocacy and the way I'm going to talk about shit in a different way. Because I mean, I kept saying like, Oh, you know, I I refer back to my brother's story and I can tell my brother's story about it. I'm like, what the fuck does that do though? So then I was like, I need to do shit in my community. So I got connected with someone who was like, yeah, you know, I said, I want to learn about harm reduction because in my time off, which was still not time off, I took a course online about the addicted brain and how like scientifically how shit works with all different substances. It was like a fucking eight week course that I took just on my own. And then I learned more about harm reduction and I thought, okay, I think I can do this. Like, I think I can kind of get into something local. So I started volunteering with shot in the dark. Um, and we do, you know, we, give out clean supplies. We take supplies in, we hand out Narcan, condoms, you know, all of that. And I started doing shit in my community because I felt like I can keep telling my story and just blogging, you know, whatever, but like, go do the fucking work, like go fucking get out there. So I did. And, um, you know, I became the volunteer coordinator back in May and, Yesterday, I went and hung out with a bunch of med students and told them about uh, harm reduction and the importance of not having stigma in the medical field and all this other shit. And like, I'm doing all these things now to, you know, raise awareness. Obviously, my brother is like the foundation of all of this, but I'm no longer um, ignoring myself. You know what I mean? Like, it's no longer. I'm just going to tell my brother's story. Like, this is the first time I've ever been interviewed about really me, you know, like no one knows about my fucking DUI. Really? No one knows. Yeah. I've never been interviewed about 
anything really because usually my story will start my brother died and this is my life i've never told any i mean other than like in my own podcast where i talked about my own fucking shit but yeah well that's probably half of why you created it yeah but no that's awesome yeah i mean that's kind of a shocker to me though because it's like how are you gonna have a guest and you're not gonna like try to like learn about your guest yeah well i mean i guess that seems weird to me but whatever yeah but I've never, I guess we're just that good. I think, but I think also, (laughs) obviously we have a fucking amazing rapport. Um, But I think, you know, like if I've been interviewed for other shit, it's always, Oh, how'd you get into this? It's never like, tell me about when you were a kid. So like, I always like to know that. Like, I always like to know, like, where the fuck are you coming from? Like, what award did you get in fourth grade? You know, whatever. Yeah. I want to know that shit. (laughs) I want to know that shit because I want to know, like, what makes you fucking tick. And so like now I just kind of see myself as like harm reduction, big sister. Like I'm still fucking, you know, when I'm out there and I see our normal participants, I'm like, Hey, how's your job going? How's this? You know, like I'm, I'm checking in with everyone. I'm making sure things are okay. And it's, you know, it's, um, I'm not going to lie. It's still fucking hard sometimes to be handing out this fucking amazing drug that can reverse an overdose. And we didn't even have it in our house. I had no fucking clue what it was. Right. I mean, that still can eat at me sometimes, I can't but imagine. in, yeah. but in the same sense exactly but believe me if you ever had to reverse an overdose i have not not like it's not like motherfuckers are like thank you and giving me a hug (laughs) no i heard it is the opposite (laughs) probably like fuck you man you know because they didn't know they were about to die they just fucking were like in a euphoric state and you just fucked it up Mm -hmm. yanked them back exactly and and uh I've been warned about that. Like if I ever have, again, I carry Narcan all the time. If I ever have to do it, I've been told the person that you revive will not be happy with you because you're pulling them out of this euphoric state that they're in. Mm. And uh, I'm grateful I haven't had to use it yet, but obviously I've, I am out at a site every week, every other week, teaching people how to use it. We have new people all the time. And about a month ago, a mom came to the site and I know she's a mom because she said, hey, I think my daughter might be using opioids or and I said, OK, and she's like, I just need uh, Narcan. Do you have that? And I told her how to use it. And I said, you can go on YouTube if you want like something more in detail to actually see. And she's like, OK, thank you. I'll, I'll make sure I keep this. And about a week ago, um, a friend of mine is uh, her coworker. That's how she found out about it. And she's like, hey, I just want to let you know that Narcan you gave my coworker, she used it the other night and saved her daughter. So mm. we just wanted to thank you. And I was like, holy fuck. Like, I have not ever heard. Sure, I hand out Narcan all the time, but I it, I never have heard up until this point someone come back and go, hey, that Narcan you gave me, I just saved my fucking daughter's life. Like, it was wild to think like, it. it was the first time I felt like, okay, this does fucking matter. Like what I'm doing fucking matters, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, um, and it's very, not like I, in a very tangible way, because yeah. regardless of the fact, if they're pissed off that they got saved and then they just go get more shit and shoot up or whatever, that's not what's important. What's important is that dead people can't recover. Exactly. Exactly. Know? And I think too, 
by, you know, even just the other piece of what you do, you know, supplying clean works Mm -hmm. is a safer way to use. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe they won't contract hepatitis. Maybe they won't contract HIV. You know, maybe they won't be stuck with some ridiculous fucking medical bill every month for the medications to handle their lifelong uncurable disease that they contracted because they were sharing needles when they could have just had the fucking clean shit from you guys. Exactly. And same thing with like the fentanyl test strips, right? Mm -hmm. Like now they can see what the fuck they got before they stick it in their arm or their nose or their pipe. Yeah. And, and it's one of those things too, where, you know, what I've realized is that, you know, even my mentality, I'd be like, well, I don't want to deal with Mark until like he's sober or he's in a better spot. But that was that was shitty of me. I understand that now. But that was around the time where I was super frustrated. I just did a fucking fake intervention with him because I think I'm on A&E and I'm an idiot. And so I'm sitting here like now realizing how much of our society will go, we'll help you when you're ready. But until then, stay where you are and we won't we won't help you until you're this 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 and this meanwhile when we do harm reduction i don't care where the fuck you at i I don't care if you show up high i will help you with if you need clean supplies i'm happy to give you clean supplies if you need to protect yourself because you're about to go have sex here are some condoms here are ways to protect yourself just so that you can make healthier choices yes is the ultimate healthy choice to stop using drugs probably but it shouldn't be like no one's there for you because a lot of these people too have maybe been kicked out of their homes. Maybe they're experiencing homelessness. Maybe whatever the fuck it may be, they've been stigmatized, ostracized, whatever. And this is like a guaranteed place where they can go. No one's going to fucking judge them. They can just shoot the shit, be their true authentic self. And, you know, I, I always felt it's just like unconditional love. That's how I felt about my brother. No matter what, the way my parents presented it to me, I presented to my brother this unconditional love. And that's how I feel about our participants that come to our sites. Like, if you want to be on a better path, great. But I'm here to support you no matter what you do. And I think in a society where compassion seems to be lacking mm-hmm. and empathy and sympathy, um, I might as well take my big sister, most responsible superpower and use it for fucking good. So, you know, that's what I try to do. And, and again, I'm a volunteer. Like I, I don't get paid for this. I I want to do this. This is something that I appreciate, but it's not in that same way as before where I'm going to fill up my fucking calendar to avoid my feelings. Like if there are times I need to step back from advocacy, now I'll fucking do it. Like I will be like, yo, my depression's acting up again. We need <laughs> we need to dial it back and hide in bed for a couple of days, and that's fine. And I understand that now, but I didn't understand those boundaries until I began to go through therapy and get on the proper medication that I need to be. And I had no idea that you could be happy again. I just thought it was just like this tunnel of bullshit for the rest of your life. Right. And then they give me Zoloft, and I was like, "Holy fuck, the sky is so blue! Isn't this such a lovely day?" And it's I was always afraid it was going to be like that fake happy. And that's why I said no to meds for so long. I was like, nah, it's going to be this artificial shit. And it's not. It's like a happy I felt fucking. I don't think I've ever felt this way in my life. Maybe 10 years, 11 years. Well, it's cool, too, because you're just. You're still on it, obviously, but it's like this, this. uh, 
this journey of self-discovery, it's just like when you can finally process through so much unchecked trauma and pain, it's, it's, and let it go. And now you, you free yourself up to experience some awe and some wonder in the, in your life where, you know, I mean, I have the same experience and it, I wish that it was something that you could like sell in a bottle, you know, but then I would be addicted to it. Right. Uh, I would because, you know, I'm not sitting here trying to say that I'm always like that, you know, like awestruck and uh, love and life for love in every moment. But I mean, definitely I can, I have those moments, you know, mm-hmm. more often. And, and like to your point, you know, there was a time when I first started having them where I was like, I don't know if I ever remember uh, experiencing this type of feeling like, you know, it's more euphoric than anything I got from drugs. It's like, yeah. it reminds me of when I was a little kid. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's good shit, man. Um, yeah. And thank you for your service that you do for the community. It's amazing. Yeah. So I have, cause we, we got to close at some point. So I got <laughs> like these closing questions. I know. Hello. <laughs> you want to, uh, <laughs> You want to do some closing questions? Yeah, let's do some closing statements, some closing arguments. Yeah. All right, Jacqueline. (laughs) All right. So we think that daily routines, um, whatever that looks like for you, is is just so critical to, uh, you know, being able to remain uh, on a good, in a good place, mentally, emotionally, physically. Uh, So, what does your daily personal self-care things that you do for your personal self-care what does your daily self-care routine consist of i will be honest and say that um recently it's kind of gone out of whack because it was the third anniversary of my brother so then my emotions get all over the place but what i've been able to maintain for now the last eight days is when I wake up in the morning, I listen to a meditation before I go on Facebook, Instagram, any of that bullshit. I light some incense. I put in my headphones and I listen to a meditation. Mm. And I actually found one that I've now listened to. Uh, t- usually I will hop around. There's this app I use called Insight Timer. It's like a free meditation app. And usually I will just kind of hop around and go, oh, morning affirmations or something fucking fun time. But one thing I always say is I fucking hate this timeline. I always say this timeline fucking blows. I'll, you know, when, when anytime there's some new, you know, fire in the world, I'm like, this timeline sucks. I found a meditation that's, uh, um, I think the title of it is something like um, moving to a new timeline. I was like, that's fucking weird. That's an oddly specific term. And I started listening to it and it pretty much says, you are allowed to move to a higher vibration, a better timeline, a happier timeline, and you're allowed to do this. And this is the first meditation. You know how your mind can wander if you're trying to meditate. This is the first one where I'm just like laser focused on what she's saying. So locked in. Yeah, exactly. Because usually it's like, pretend you're a leaf floating down the fucking river. And then I'm like, ooh, is there a river nearby? And then, you know, whatever. I keep thinking (laughs) all this crazy shit. So um, 
so I try to start my day with meditation. Um, one thing that may sound kind of silly is we have two dogs and one of our dogs, his name is Tuco. The other is named Gus. They're both named after breaking bad characters. And, <laughs> and uh, Tuco, he is an older dog. He's 12 and he's in kind of like a doggy dementia sort of phase. And, you know, like he's nearing the end. And so the new routine that I have every morning is my husband picks him up and puts him on my chest in the morning and he just licks my face. And it's a big deal because this is a dog that never licked anyone. He's not a licker. He do- he's like, get the fuck away from me. He's kind of like me. So he <laughs> in the morning will sit there and nuzzle with me and lick my face. And it just sets this lovely tone for the day of him being cuddly and him understanding that now this is our routine we cuddle in the morning together because I do it with my other dog because he's a little brat and he'll wake me up. But I have my cuddle time with my dogs. And then throughout the day, do I have anything that's really routine? No, I need to make working out a part of my routine. And that's something that I was doing consistently is trying to get at least 30 minutes of exercise in just to be out in nature, to go Mm -hmm. do whatever. Um, But then other than that, I don't have anything I need to incorporate an end of night routine, which I don't do, but it's keep it's kept me um, sane. And I'm now trying to transition to doing affirmations every day, setting intentions every day. Like today I set out, found all these affirmations. I'm like, okay, every morning we're going to fucking write some down. Um, So I'm trying to build these are new habits. So that's yeah. something I'm trying to bring into my routine. Hey, there ain't nothing wrong with that, man. I mean, it's, it's good to keep seeking and trying yes. new things and being open to, to that stuff. Because the fact of the matter is, is even, even if you like got to this place where you just zend out all the time for a while, um, eventually that's going to end. And I would, yes. and, I, and I would venture to think that eventually some of the things that you're doing that got you that, uh, to that state, maybe you'll stop working and then you're going to have to find things that work, you know, so Mm -hmm. what worked for you last month might not work for you today. That's exactly it. Yeah. So it's good. You're seeking and you're, and you're still working that out and you're still, Mm -hmm. uh, the important thing is that you're putting effort into it. Yep. What is a book or a piece of literature that has had the biggest impact on your life? Uh, I know I mentioned the power of now, which is by Eckhart Tolle. Um, but you got to be in like a fucking different mind space to, to read it. Cause it, it is kind of some far out shit if you're not exposed to it. But another book is the alchemist. Um, and that's a book that again, I just, every time I read it, I get something different out of it. Um, but I really like that a lot. The alchemist and i'll put both of those oh yeah and as as always but maybe you're a first time listener maybe you don't know we do this but if you just <laughs> on the on the page where you go to press play you know when you look this up if you just scroll down a little bit you'll see show notes in the show notes we're gonna have her book recommendations we're gonna have her i'm actually i'll put that insight timer in there as under mm-hmm. resources um so people, if they want to check out that moving to a new timeline or just check out the different stuff they have on there, mm-hmm. they can. I'll put in the links for, you know, shot in the dark. If people are in the Arizona area, 
Recovery Advocacy Project website, the Shatterproof website, and the link to Dark and Enlightened, the yes. sweet podcast of Jacqueline. Um, <laughs> everything is always in the show notes in a sweet little nice polished package, nice and easy, clickable links, super simple for you guys to access all the cool shit we talk about. Um, and those books, I'll put both of those books, the power of now and the alchemist in there. What is the best piece of advice that you think that you've received on this journey of self-improvement? That's an excellent question. Um, I think the only thing that we currently have is right now and focusing on the now is probably the most important. Looking back causes depression. Looking forward causes anxiety. So stay in the now. And for someone with depression and anxiety, let's avoid both of those as much as possible. So we'll hang out here. <laughs> exactly. That I'm raising my hand over here. <laughs> <sighs> been struggling with the anxiety lately too yeah i don't know this season's changing yes and mm -hmm. i'm like fuck and my mom's medical stuff is coming to a head where now it's like she might be having to go back she might have to get a transplant soon for bone marrow transplant and then she'll <sighs> have to go to the hospital for another month in oh which case gosh. at that time i'm gonna have to I'm going to have to be requesting layoff so I can help take care of her. Cause that when she gets released from that month of hospitalization, she's going to need uh, help for like a month. Damn dude. So no, it's good. These are good things, but you know, it's scary too. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, I don't know. It's weird too. Cause it's like on one hand, it's perfect timing because it's winter and it's a perfect time where if I want to go to my boss and be like, Hey man, can you just put me on layoff so I can actually get some income while I'm helping her instead of taking yeah. this intermittent FMLA where yeah. I get no income and I can't even like get unemployment. Right. Um, I can do that. Right. But so that's mm -hmm. a good thing, but then kind of like the worst possible timing and the fact that it's like the season it is. And it, yeah, I mean, it's depressing anyway from seasonal depression and the fact that i have depression that i have generalized anxiety it all kind of ramps up at this time of year for me but then you know going having all that time on my hands being laid off makes it worse yeah mm -hmm. and then but maybe it would be different if i'm at home or with or if i'm at home with her i don't live with yeah her. but if i'm with her taking care of her maybe yeah. different because i'll have like a purpose yeah yeah <laughs> Okay, enough about me. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're uh, fine. This is all about you. <laughs> okay, so yeah, that was your best piece of advice. Now, what is the greatest challenge you think you faced on this journey? Um, building self-confidence is probably been my biggest challenge because I can... I project real fucking well and everyone's like, oh, you're just so confident when you talk and you're so funny and you're so this. It's all a fucking ruse. I have zero fucking confidence. Like I, I doubt everything that I do. I, but again, you know, that's depression and anxiety. Like that just sucks you in. Like you're a shitty sister. You're a shitty person. You should do more. You should. Uh, you're not that smart. Why would you ever fucking quit your job? Why would you? Why do you think that you can go out into the world and figure out your own shit? Like this constantly goes through my mind all the time. Mm -hmm. um, 
is it at the same volume? No, it's not. And that a lot of that has been building my self-confidence through therapy, through um, just realizing that I kind of know what I'm fucking talking about and being okay saying that and not thinking that's a bragging type thing. Um, I think that's, that's one thing. So the fact that usually I would explain someone compliments me, I would go, yeah, but I would, you know, downplay it. And now I just go, thank you. See, that's hard as hell. Mm hmm. I still struggle with that. Yeah. That's it's one of really things, fucking hard. Yeah. That's one of the things I learned early on. Take the fucking compliment. Right. Why don't what instead of doing saying anything else, why don't you just try saying thank you? See how that works right. out for you. It's extremely uncomfortable because people it be is. like, oh, you look so great. And I'm thinking in my head, well, not really. It's just the angle. You know, yeah. but then I'm just like, I'm like, let me take my you. clothes off. <laughs> Look at this. You want to see my stomach? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's uh yeah. Mm-hmm. I think we all have that inner critic and in in the rooms of uh AA, I don't think I ever heard anybody say this in NA, but in AA with older folks, they call it the itty bitty shitty committee. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought that was kind of cute. And I'm like, yeah. we gotta bring that back, but it's too yeah. many syllables. People are too lazy. <laughs> this younger generation is too lazy to say that many syllables. <laughs> It's true. <laughs> it's true. It needs to be a fucking acronym. Otherwise, God we're not damn doing it. it. Yeah. Make it an acronym. <laughs> oh, man. That's funny. So what let's let's uh, bring it up a notch. And how about what's your greatest success that you think you've experienced? Um, I would say not giving a shit about what people think and being honest about who I am. Mm. Um, I was always so worried about like, like we discussed, I was worried about what people think of me. Are people going to like me? I want to be a people pleaser. Mm. Now I, if you don't like what I have to say, then you don't have to listen to me. Um, I think I'm pretty likable overall. So then maybe it's something with you, but (laughs) Um, it, it's something where it's freeing to not have everyone's opinions or comments really like weigh into what I do. Um, and that's been really, really nice to yeah. just kind of do my thing, like quitting my job. Do you know how many fucking people were like, why did you do that? Cause I don't fucking like it. The end, that's the end of the story like that. I don't need to go in the anxiety ramble. I'm sure, you know, the anxiety ramble where you, fucking give every fucking reason as to why to justify i don't need to justify shit to anyone exactly and i finally the only this year have i really accepted that yeah um not obligated yeah. to give people an explanation what mm-hmm. is it they say like no is a complete sentence. no is a complete sentence yes yeah. usually i'm like no but maybe if you're free next week we can meet up i'm sorry i have to go to the store like shut up shut up no <laughs> i can't do that today <laughs> The end. The end. <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's a big one, man. Mm-hmm. All right. The now we're gonna ask when it's maybe a little heavy too, um, but it's instructive, right? Because we're always works in progress. There's always the next thing that we got to work on. But <clears throat> what is 
something that you haven't forgiven yourself or someone else for? I haven't given forgiven myself for not making um, more attempts to help my brother or contact him or check in with him. I don't know if I'll ever get over that um, because there's still that part of me that's like, maybe if I did this more. And I think that's always going to be like that for any family member. Yeah. If I had done this more, if I had done that more, if I had talked to him more, if I called him this day. Uh, I don't think I can ever forgive myself for that because for me, I felt like he needed help and, you know, it was my role to be there for him. And there were times I would step back and I understand in retrospect, I have to have my boundaries, but it's something that's always going to lurk in my head. Um, and yeah, again, for sure. the volume's not as loud, but it's still fucking there. And, um, you know, I mean, when really I do though, you like you tried your ass off you fucking tried you didn't back down from an opportunity to have a hard conversation you know and so you walked full-on knowing that you're walking into a fucking argument when you're gonna bring this shit up again and you know you tried and tried and i mean a person can only take so much of that yeah it's fucking emotionally and mentally exhausting when yeah all you're getting is pushback and now, and then they start firing darts back at you. Yeah. You, you got the DWI. Mm-hmm. You still drink. Shut the fuck up. Yep. Blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Who are you? You know, mm-hmm. they start feeding on your insecurities and shit and playing mm-hmm. on that. I mean, I would venture to say, man, I mean, you could have kept trying. Mm-hmm. You could have never gave up and just fucking wore yourself down into the, into a pulp trying to yeah. get, like control and manipulate what was happening with him but it wouldn't have fucking done any different the only difference is you know i think to your point you know is what you've learned now right like that when you when you can meet them where they're at and just support them from where they're at like that would be the only difference that could have been made is if you had Mm -hmm. learned that but unfortunately you know i think it just took the whole situation yeah for you to desire to learn a new way or you know and you ended up coming across all this information and 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 learning the things you've learned that i mean now i mean you probably venture to say you're kind of somewhat of a harm reduction expert right and yeah and this this is all as you said it's rooted from that experience so Mm -hmm. i mean it's like everything's got a purpose, right? Like, yeah. And, and if you can look at it like that, it served a purpose. It can make some sort of sense out of it. Yeah. It's like understanding that. And now I practice it and it's, um, you know, cause my brother used to have this, uh, like he had this saying that he would post on social media or say, and it was, stay golden which i have tattooed on my arm which Mm. is like live the golden rule so treat people how you want to be treated need say that all the time stay golden and um that's what i try to do just if i were in that situation i'm treating them and then people like but there's the platinum rule too okay fuck off like my whole point is treat people with fucking respect you know like regardless of where they're at in their life and I've really humans and exactly 
You know, everybody deserves to be treated with dignity and respect. Everybody. Exactly. Exactly. There was a, when we were at mobilized, man, some, there was a couple people running around with these shirts that said like, I love drug users or something like that. Mm -hmm. I want to, I want one of them shirts. I'll, I'll, I'll find you. I'll find you a shirt. I actually have someone at one of my sites who has a hoodie that says I love drug users. I'll find out from her where she got it. I'll get you. Oh yeah. Cause I, okay. I yeah. love that. And I think <laughs> yeah, it would be absolutely. a good conversation starter. Cause originally exactly. people are going to think that you're a drug user. If you're wearing that fucking shirt, probably mm -hmm. I would imagine on the street. Yeah. But it could be something that could spark a conversation. Absolutely. Even if that conversation gets sparked by them trying to come at you like some kind of judgmental prick, but mm -hmm. you know, you don't have to respond in defensive mechanism. You can just be like, Hey, you know, that you got it twisted. And like, this is what this means. Cause mm -hmm. we're all human beings who deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. Bottom. Exactly. Period. The end. The end. The that's end. It. No, mm -hmm. that's not the end yet. We got another question. <laughs> This is the last one. It's my favorite. What song symbolizes recovery to you or healing or whatever you're, uh, um, whatever you like. <laughs> let's see. You know what um, song I've been actually playing a lot that makes me feel like, oh, yeah, you can't fucking kill me. Is that, uh, you know, that Macklemore song that I ain't gonna die tonight. So I you know that song? Do you know what I'm talking about? History is you know what I'm saying? That's pretty much the best voice I can do. So I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I'm like, uh, I'm going to uh, die tonight. What? I'm not no, going to die tonight. I, no, hold on. Let me fucking look it up. Hold on. Macklemore. Yeah. Like I, I've been listening to that a lot to like kind of pump me up. Like if I'm feeling shittier, you know, I just need like <laughs> you I know, think maybe your rendition of it's just not <laughs> not exactly spot on. <laughs> Where the fuck hold on, let me look it up. Um, but yeah, that song is good. And um hold on. <laughs> Oh, it is called Ain't Gonna Die Tonight by Macklemore. Yeah. Wow. I freaking I'm smart. Yeah. It's a like the lyrics are what I was trying to say was I ain't gonna die tonight. You can't kill me. Not my spirit. Oh, okay. History is ours tonight. The people are chanting. Can't you hear it? But I if I were to sing that, it would fucking sound terrible. Anyway, did he play um, the, it live? Because I, I think he did. Yeah, I think he did. But humble I, brag you know we were at a macklemore concert private concert it was private you know just us <laughs> well <laughs> no. people. There was other people <laughs> um man thanks so much i look forward um, to listening to that again when i write up these show notes and put this yeah. all together for charles jacqueline man thank you thank you thank you thank you i appreciate this was a you. lovely conversation it sure was and you know i hope that uh you know, you just have all the success and all, you know, in your new venture. I know that you just, you know, like you alluded to it. If you guys want to learn about this, why don't you just go listen to season two, episode one of Dark and Enlightened? Because oh really, he really talks at length about um, how she just quit corporate America to try to find a, you know, like some kind of passion 
you know, calling instead of just a job, you know, like, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, it's going to be good. And I, and I just, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with it. And, and, uh, you got my support sister. Thank you. So do you. This was lovely. What a lovely time. Wunderbar. (laughs) What the fuck does that mean? It's wonderful in German. All right. (laughs) So you guys out there. Take care of each other and yourselves. Um, thanks for listening. We appreciate your ears. And Jacqueline, you take care. You too. We'll talk to you later. And everybody, have a great week. And we'll see you back here next week if you like listening to us that much. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week. So keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to the Way Out podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety date will.